Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the ethical considerations of mental health clinicians using public media, such as myself. I, by doing this podcast, use public media, but I also use Facebook and Instagram and lots of other things. And over the years, since I started doing this 11 years ago, I have been thinking about and looking up expert opinion and uh, you know consulting and reading about other ethical considerations or ethical applications and applying it to how I'm using a podcast, the sort of thing I talk about. And it's really this brand new world. Uh, there's not a lot of therapists who do podcasting and – uh, and it hasn't been that long uh, among us who have been doing it. And a lot of the other ethical guidelines or ethical scenarios have been discussed over decades. For example, uh, having sex with a client, for example, is considered unethical. And it took us a while as an industry to figure that out. For the first several decades, it wasn't considered unethical at all. In fact, they didn't really even have an ethical code back then. And over time, they started thinking, hmm, you know, we should probably look at this. We should probably look at that. We should think about it. We should look at the effect on clients. We should uh, think about how it looks to the public. And over time, they wisely decided that it was unethical and eventually illegal in a lot of areas to have sex with a client. And uh, with podcasting, uh, it's it, there are ethical codes that can be applied to it, but it's hard to know exactly how they apply because it's really quite different. Like just take the issue of self-disclosure or professionalism. Let's just take the issue of professionalism. Therapists, when I first entered the field in the mid-90s, the internet didn't really exist. Barely, you know, you had a pine uh, email servers and whatnot. And certainly people didn't have Facebook and all this kind of stuff. And so it was uh, – easy for therapists, uh, for me back then, to be quote-unquote professional, meaning that I uh, represented the field well. Because while I was at work, I acted professionally. And when I went home, I acted like a idiot 26-year-old, like any other uh, red-blooded American male in Seattle. And uh, But I didn't worry about acting unprofessional because the chance of me running into a client or a coworker was like almost, you know, zero. So I could be who I wanted to be. Well, when, in today's world with, you know, you could be out at a party, someone could snap a picture of you, they, they, could, they could post it on Instagram, they could uh, tag you on it or whatever, or they could even, even post it to your, um, to your public media page, like your business Facebook page or something. And although, you know, obviously there are privacy uh, uh, um, settings that you can set for all this kind of stuff, but it's, it's just a different world now. And the, the, the industry, my industry in mental health has been scrambling to try to figure out um, how to deal with that. Professionalism is just one of the issues. We also got confidentiality, multiple relationship, dual relationship issues, um, harm to clients, all this kind of stuff. And so I've been thinking about it over the years. And basically just making up rules as I see fit to fit uh, my idea of what I think is the ethical uh, sweet spot, so to speak, of having a podcast 
and not harming anybody, including the public, by the way. You know, it's not just your clients you're worried about, but also your students, the supervisees, and the public. And I, I had a system, and I developed it, and I felt, I felt pretty good about it. It was all in my head. I hadn't written it down at all. I had written some notes, but really it was all just in my head. I had a sense of what I could talk about on the podcast, what I couldn't talk about. Well, all that kind of changed when I was hired by a supervisee. So some, another clinician wanted me to uh, supervise her, and she is also uh, – she uses public media for her work as well and is uh, quite well-known. And so in that instance, for the first time, I was faced with a situation where I was not only monitoring my own behavior and my own micro decisions minute by minute, day to day, week to week, but I was also monitoring someone else's ethical behavior regarding using public media like Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and all these other kinds of things. And it was a different, and at first I thought, well, I can certainly do this. I've been doing it for 11 years. I can certainly supervise someone. But then as I got into it, I was like, wait, it's actually completely different because I have to download my decision-making model into this person's head sufficiently so that they can do it on their own. Because I can't be there with them minute to minute. They have to have the ethical guidelines in their head so well that they can actually operate from those ethical codes, ethical guidelines, and 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 not get in trouble uh, in their own you know behaviors. And this person, the supervisee, was so heavily involved in public media that it was such that I couldn't monitor everything that they did. And so I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll I'll just take some time to. Uh, uh, train this person, and maybe I'll start jotting down some notes so that I can send this person some guidelines, some you know, a bullet point list of things that they have to follow. And as I t- as time went on, I was like, well, wait a second, like, how do I really justify what I'm telling this person, and and do I really know that this is the right thing? I I have determined that it's good for my practice, but. It's a whole different thing when you have to tell someone else to do something. I think a lot of clinician slash supervisors, educators out there can relate to this. You know, it's one thing for, for, for a clinician to have a sense of how they practice and what they do. It's a whole other thing to, to teach it to someone else and, and convince them to do it. And if that person, you know, garners a complaint for some reason, you have to be able to justify your training of that person. So it's this whole other, much higher level. It really increased the intensity of the situation tenfold for me. So as I made this list, I thought, you know what, maybe I should start looking into the literature. And as I did that, I found myself writing a piece, a several page piece on this topic of the ethical considerations of mental health clinicians using public media, such as Facebook and YouTube and podcasting. And I became mildly obsessed with it. And over the span of this was actually my, if you're following my deep dive life, I finished my deep dive on attachment and this was my next uh, obsession. And I spent all my free time on this. I would spend all Saturday, all Sunday reading and writing and researching and, and thinking about it. And so 
I wrote this paper and at first it was just a short paper and it bloomed into like, I don't know, it, it's too big to publish in an article. It's too big to publish in a journal or a, a newsletter or something. It's several pages, but it's not big enough to be a book or something. Maybe it'll be a chapter in a book or something. And I thought as part of that, I would actually talk about it here on the podcast. And since it's rather technical, I thought I would make it a patron only podcast. Sorry to you non-patrons. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about lots of different things. I'm going to talk about um, why clinicians should even use media in the first place. You know, what, what are the benefits of it, you know, to, to your life? What are the benefits to society and to clients and students and supervisees when clinicians use public media? Uh, because the whole ethical consideration formula involves benefit versus risk. So if there's a little bit of risk and no benefit, then you shouldn't do it in general. But if there's tremendous benefit and there's some mild risks, then we tend to look at those situations uh, in a way that says, well, maybe we should do it anyway because there's, there's a tremendous uh, benefit potentially. Um, so I, I lay out all the benefits for clinicians using public media, not only to their clients and supervisees and students, but also to society at large. We really need to be doing more, and I talk about that. I talk about the risk to confidentiality and the literature around that. I look at the risk of boundary violations. That's a pretty big one for me in terms of monitoring that. I uh, discuss at length the, the risk of harmful multiple relationships or dual relationships for you clinicians out there. You know what I'm talking about. I talk about the risk of harmful self-disclosure in public media, which is a pretty big consideration. I also, as I was talking about earlier, I talk about the risk of harmful unprofessionalism and the risk of inaccurate publications, which is pretty easy to change, um, pretty easy to monitor. And then I talk about the ethical decision-making uh, model that I propose, uh, the questions one would ask while they are using public media and how to um, answer those questions effectively. Because ethical um, decision-making is all about asking certain questions and trying to find the answers effectively. Then I talked about informed consent. I, I believe uh, that if we are to be ethical clinicians, if you have a um, but if you have a public media account of some kind, whether it's a podcast, a YouTube channel, or even just a business Facebook page where you post things on there, you need to inform your people, whether they're uh, supervisees or clients, about that and what your policies are. Do you respond if your client comments? Should your client even look at that kind of stuff? What are the risks of it? All those things need to be laid out prior to the person entering into a relationship with you. If you don't, you run the risk of being sued effectively because you didn't inform your client beforehand about the risks and, and the guidelines. And then I summarized the, the recommendations to clinicians uh, at, depending on the, the level of public media that you're involved in. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor and a podcaster. Pod, pod I'm, I'm a podcaster. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. I apologize for that. If you want to listen to this full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast. If you're not a patron, you're, you're going to listen. You're, this episode is going to end soon. Uh, if when you become a patron, you get directions to getting access to the full episode. Sometimes people email me and they're just like, 
So I was listening to the episode and I only got, and suddenly it just ended. And I'm like, oh, are you a patron? And they're like, nope. And I said, well, that's the problem. <laughs> I thought I explained that. So I'm trying to explain it more fully right now. Um, so go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. You get access to this and hundreds of other excellent episodes, if I might say so myself. Thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone, people. Thank you so much for becoming a patron of this podcast. It uh, warms the cockles every time I get an email from someone saying that they have become a patron. So the first thing I should define up front is, well, what public media am I involved in? Well, I'm involved in a number of them. Uh, I primarily, I host two different podcasts. I, I host the Psychology in Seattle podcast, obviously. But I also have a small podcast that I actually haven't recorded any episodes for it in a while, but it's called the Couple and Family Therapy Podcast. And these podcast episodes are available on podcast apps, obviously, but they're also available on YouTube and Spotify and other platforms. Um, I'm also interviewed occasionally as an expert on radio or television or other podcasts or news outlets, print. And so that's, that's public media as well. And I need to think about the ethics of being interviewed in, in that way. I'm on social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I think that's it. Um, and uh, publicly, I have, a, you know, I have two or three public Facebook accounts. I, you know, I have my, my practice account, which I don't really do much with, but I have the, the Psychology in Seattle Facebook page. And then the Psychology in Seattle Facebook fan page, of which I do, don't do anything with, but I guess it's sort of technically connected to me. I have a Psychology in Seattle Instagram. I have a Psychology in Seattle Twitter. Um, and on those pages, I post the podcast episodes. I sometimes just post random things, research findings, tougher bluff, that kind of stuff. And sometimes I post pictures, like pictures of my cat or pictures of a colleague and me at a training or something. Or recently I ran into my very first instructor in graduate school from 1995, Flora Ostro. And I took a selfie and I posted it on the Psychology Seattle Facebook page. So stuff like that. I also provide public trainings and lectures that are sometimes recorded and made available on the internet. Some of you out there might think, oh, I'm, I, I'm not on the internet, but it's like, if you had a training or a lecture or anything like that, or you even asked a question uh, in a training and it's on the internet, then you're in public media. That's the other thing. Like, e this applies not only to people who obviously know they're involved in public media, like they're, a, you know, a Twitter influencer or something. They. This also applies to being accidentally put on the internet and. Uh, that needs to be, you know, taken into consideration. Like you're at a nightclub dancing and someone is there taking pictures of everybody and posting it on the um, website of, of the club. Well, now you are in public media, whether you liked it or not, uh, depending on what the privacy settings are. And in that way, you have to consider what you're doing. Uh, because you, especially if you saw the person taking pictures and you didn't inquire about where they were putting it, you just need to assume, oh, that's going to go on the internet 
and my clients might actually see that. What do I need to do? Um, this, this is annoying. It doesn't mean you're likely to get sued or something. So the, the, the thing I'll say from the start is like there are two levels to this. One is, is to avoid being sued, right? So you don't want to get sued and you don't want to have your career uh, impacted negatively. You don't want to lose reputation or something. But primarily what we're concerned with is harm to clients and students and supervisees. So, regard, you know, we get sued very, very rarely. Very rarely do clinicians and educators get sued. And even more rarely are we successfully sued. So it's a pretty strange occurrence. Much mo- we're much more likely to harm someone who doesn't go through the steps to sue us. So we should be really concerned, obviously, with harm. And so just going on that example, say you're at a nightclub, you're dancing, you're drinking, you're in a, you know, in a, your night outfit, if you will. And the cameraman comes around uh, and you do a sexy pose and they take a picture of you and it goes on the internet and it becomes some kind of uh, internet sensation of some level. And your client sees it, one of your clients sees it, and sees that you are um, acting in a way that they feel is not very becoming of their own therapist, and it harms them. Now, uh, as you know, if you listen to me talk about things, is I believe that therapists should be absolutely allowed to have their own private life. Uh, So I'm not saying that you're supposed to be Mother Teresa and hold up in your house and never leave. What I'm saying is, is that everyone just needs to think about the the harm. You know, I'm also saying that you're not likely to be successfully sued for that scenario because you're, you're off duty. You didn't know it was going to go on the internet. It wasn't your intention. So I can't imagine anyone being sued for something like that. But again, we just have to be careful about what is going to happen to our clients. We, um, particularly for clients that are sensitive to certain things. So, um, we have to, I I assume all of you clinicians care about that. Um, so yeah, so those are different media platforms that I'm concerned with, you know, mainly my podcast and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I also, uh, will, uh, print, you know, articles in public, uh, public, media outlets like Family Therapy Magazine, print print situations. Why can't I use my words right now? Um, and that should also be, ethics of that should also be considered, what I write in articles, that kind of stuff. Um, also, it should be noted that in this talk, I'm going to exclude my personal social media activity, like my personal Facebook page, my personal Instagram page. That's probably it. All that is not included in this conversation because I know how to um, prevent access to those things. Um, Namely, I limit the amount of friends I have. I I actually did this as I was writing this paper. So when I first, just as a side note, when I first started Facebook, I just had this general policy like, look, if someone friends me, as, as long as I know them, I'll confirm the friendship. If, if, if they're a musician, if they're another podcaster, if 
they're even if they're a student or um, I would never friend a client uh, that was where I drew the line and I, and I would never and I actually would never uh, confirm a friend request from a listener. Uh, it just felt like if I opened that can of worms, I decided that early on. And I just said, if I if I started accepting friend requests from listeners, uh, my Facebook feed and my Facebook friend circle would probably be dominated by all these listeners, which is interesting on some level because I you know I'd certainly like to know more about my listeners. But it would uh, you know the primary reason why I use Facebook is so I could connect with my family and like my very close friends. So I have, you know, say 10 close friends and I have, say, 30 family members and we can share pictures and we can share memories and we can comment and sort of catch, you know, my, my sister lives in Duluth, for example, and she posts stuff all the time and I, I get to see what's going on in her life and she gets to see what's going on in mine. We got to instantly uh, communicate with each other in that way. And uh, we wouldn't be able to have that otherwise. Um, so I, I really enjoy that. Um and to have my Facebook page filled with a bunch of people I didn't know very well would um, just not feel right. So, so I never would accept from a listener or from a client, but I generally accepted from a lot of people. So, you know, if I met someone at a fundraiser or I knew someone, I met someone at a training or something, um, we would become friends on Facebook and I would just be like, yeah, that's fine. You know, uh, you never know what sort of connection you want to keep. But as I was writing this paper, I started realizing, well, the more people I'm friends with, the more likelihood that a client or student or supervisee will be friends with one of my friends. And it's so I can't guarantee that they won't gain, gain access to my private information. Now, the other thing I'll say about my private Facebook page, which actually has a lot of things. I have, so I, I, I've, I'm really into genealogy. And so I, I have pictures going back to the early 1800s or whenever they invented cameras, mid 1800s of my family. And I've been posting those and that goes all the way up to the present. So I have thousands of pictures of my family and the things of my life. It's sort of like a, like a documentary of my family history in some ways. And uh, so there's a lot of things and um, but at the same time, I never post anything that I would be worried if a client or, or supervisee saw. So even though I don't let them have access to it, um, uh, even if they did get access, it wouldn't ruin things. It, it's not advised for any client to know that much about me. But, you know, it's, it's – uh, I don't post things like um, – I don't know. Let's say that – I was deeply depressed or something. I don't post that on Facebook. It's just not, that would be something for people that I would talk with in person or, but I wouldn't just openly say I am massively depressed this week. Now, other people can do that obviously, but I think for therapists, they just have to be very careful about what they put out there because you just never know uh, one, who's going to have access to it and two, how it's going to be interpreted. So you just have to be, conservative and, and really think about, um, and, and I always do this and I'll get into this later. Everything I post on the internet, whether I, whether it's private on a private page or even anonymously, like, like my Reddit name is, is anonymous. It's an, I have an anonymous name that no one would connect with me. I don't think. And yet 
on Reddit, I don't post anything that I would worry about a client or student or my wife reading because I, you just never know. You know, when you're, a th- when you're a regular person, when you're not a therapist, you don't have to really worry about this because, you know, worst case scenario, someone figures out who you are and they don't like it. Um, but for us clinicians, we can harm people. Uh, and we have a higher responsibility to these people. And so our options are limited. And that sucks. But with that comes the glory of our profession, which is to help people and to get all that meaning out of life. So um, it's just uh, another thing to think about. I didn't write about any of that in this paper because uh, it just didn't seem pertinent. Maybe I should add something about that. Anyway. So let's go on to the next section. So that was like different media platforms that I'm using and some detail on that. But now let's talk about, you know, why do I use media at all? So I'll just read my paper because I think it sums it up. Since I decided to become a therapist at the age of 24, the foundational purpose of every professional decision I've made has been to attempt to make a positive difference. For the first 13 years of being a therapist, supervisor, and educator, I felt satisfied in my mission to make a positive difference. I was helping clients to reduce their symptoms and to improve their relationships. I was helping students and supervisees develop as clinicians. It was wonderful to witness clients and trainees transform, improve their self-esteem, and give back to their communities. Each session and each class activity and each supervision meeting held something very special to me. Then, in the mid-2000s, I started listening to podcasts. I loved the long-form, in-depth discussions about topics like science, movies, astronomy, and, of course, psychology and psychotherapy. Back then, the podcasting landscape was like the Wild West. If you had a little tech knowledge and, you know, you know if you had a little technology knowledge, and something to say, you could be one of the most popular podcasts in the world. I wondered if I could extend my mission of positive change through a podcast of my own. I also felt at the time like my work was becoming a little less challenging and somewhat routine. In 2008, I started a podcast called Psychology in Seattle. For the first seven years, there were relatively few listeners, although they were loyal and encouraging. Then in 2015, at the suggestion of a listener, I created a page on Patreon.com, which allows listeners to become quote-unquote patrons for $5 a month in support of the podcast. I honestly did not think anyone would give me their hard-earned money, but some did, and a causal loop occurred. As more people became patrons of the podcast, I was able to take fewer clients and supervisees, which meant I could spend more time in the podcast, which made the podcast better, which attracted more listeners who also donated more money and so on. Fast forward to now, 2019, and I spend more time and make more income from the podcast than I do from my other work activities combined, like all my other activities, being a therapist, being a professor, being a supervisor and an author. Um, side note, <laughs> some of you might be a little surprised by that. What I'll say is my, ther- my therapy practice and my supervision practice is really small now. And professors don't make that much money. 
at least at my institution and most institutions that we've studied. Professors, um, unless you're like a rock star, like Marshall Linehan or something, you you really don't make that much money. Um, so, uh, yeah, especially when they know you also have a practice. Because like at my university, you're actually required to have a practice because they want to make sure you stay in the in the mix and and that you understand what it's like to be a therapist. You know, you don't want a professor of therapy who closed their practice 20 years ago. So they always know you're you're making some of your income per month on your practice. And so so anyway. Um all right, let's go on here. The personal meaning of the podcast has increased as well. So again, this is me talking about why any clinician would use media at all, right? So one of the reasons is uh, to to earn money. Uh, and then I go on to say, the personal meaning of the podcast has increased as well. To prepare for each episode, the podcast gives me an excuse to fully research topics that I've always wanted to have deeper knowledge of, such as attachment theory, Bowenian theory, and psychodynamic theory. For example... To prepare for an in-depth episode on attachment theory, I spent several months reading, contemplating, and talking with experts. That episode ended up being 17 hours long, which indicates how much knowledge I acquired during those months of study. Also, the podcast has connected me with several important people in my life, including one of my, one of my heroes, the renowned psychotherapist Irvin Yalom. Also, my co-host and friend, Umberto Castaneda, and I have had the opportunity to have deep and meaningful conversations on the podcast, conversations that we will not likely ever forget. Also, my media involvement has increased client, supervisee, and consultee referrals, even though I can't really use them. I basically give them all to my own supervisees. I, I get emails, I don't know, every other day uh, asking for um, information on hiring me, and I, I just send them all to my supervisees. I guess it's one of the benefits of being <laughs> one of my supervisees. Um, uh, again, because I don't, I don't have time because I, I spend time on the podcast, which I enjoy. Additionally, I'm fairly certain that the vast majority of my book sales are from podcast publicity. Furthermore, Washington state law allows me to use the podcast prep time to meet some of my continuing education requirements requirements for licensure. In other words, you know, when you become a licensed clinician, you have to have a certain amount of hours of continuing education and Washington state law. And I'm guessing other states allow this too. Uh, if you do, if you prepare for and give a training, you can count some of those hours towards those continuing education requirements. Cause the idea goes, if you, prepare for a lecture and give a training, you learned a lot in that process and you should be able to count that as continuing education. But most importantly, I get a tremendous amount of personal meaning from my attempt to make the world a better place through public media. Since the beginning of my career in psychotherapy, this has been my prime directive to make a positive difference. When I retire, I want to look back on my life in I, when I retire, I want to look back on a life in which I at least attempted to make a positive difference in the lives of others. My public media involvement has been a significant part of that effort since it grants me the opportunity to reach a wider audience. Not to brag, but every day I receive messages from listeners who have benefited from the podcast, such as, quote, "You're awesome and educational." 
and you've brought me to a point of insight that I never would have that I never would be at without you, unquote. It's messages like these that keep me going. So that's the end of that uh, uh, section there. Yeah. So just to piggyback on my own writing here is uh, that's the biggest meaning to me. I, I did this podcast for many years without being paid at all. In fact, I lost money on it. And the little bit of response that I did get from listeners uh, in the beginning for the first number of years uh, was the fuel that kept me going. The, um, the ability to reach more people and to help them was the reason why I did this and the, and the primary reason why I continued to do it, to do it. Whenever I think about making a podcast episode, that's, that's the first thing I think about. I think, do the listeners want to hear this and would they benefit from it? Now, sometimes it's, you know, we're just talking about the Avengers or something, but even then I try to figure out some angle to make it useful and helpful to, to people's lives. Um, so that's, that's the main reason. And I think, so I, I wrote out all that because I want other clinicians, part of the reason why I wrote this was I want to inspire other clinicians to use public media. There's a lot of paranoia about the ethics and there's also a lot of like, well, why would I use public media? You know, that's not really my style. And what I'm here to say is that there's so many awesome things about using public media and I'll get into the benefits too, but but, you know, you can make money, you can meet people, you can learn a tremendous, I mean, I have just learned so much. I would venture to say 75% of what I know about psychology and psychotherapy, I have learned because of prepping for episodes on the podcast and learning from people I've interviewed on the podcast. So... And, and I have two master's degrees and a doctorate. <laughs> and, 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 you know, maybe half of everything I know. I don't know. Uh, a lot, let's just say. And so that's great. I love to learn. Also, uh, but the most important thing, like I said, is connecting with the listeners, meeting the listeners, um, uh, ha- the listeners that have changed my life. And so that's a big deal. And I, I wish other clinicians would, would, would do that too. All right. So now let's get into the benefits uh, in general of clinicians using public media. So again, as I was talking about earlier, the, the formula involved in ethical decision-making is evaluating not only just the risks, but also evaluating the benefits. And like I said, if something has a little bit of risk, but no benefit, then generally we shouldn't do it. But if there's a big benefit and some risk to it, and the risks are minimal and the benefits are great, then the benefits uh, justify the risk. You know, we should never do something that carries risk without any benefit. So we have to look at the benefits. Are there benefits to clinicians using public media? And um, the the thing that I've found is that, generally speaking, there's this there's this knee-jerk reaction of people saying that they don't want to use public media at all. They don't really recognize the benefits. Um, but the analogy that I have is no one questions the value of publishing in a peer-reviewed journal, right? When you uh, see someone who is researching or even just writing a piece for a, you know, they're just writing opinion piece for a professional publication, no one questions that. I think, of course, you have something to say about this or that, and you want to publish that in that professional journal. Well, a professional journal is viewable by everyone, 
it's not just viewable by other professionals. It's viewable by everyone. Now, the likelihood of your clients and trainees coming across, well, I guess your trainees will likely come across your, your professional articles, but your clients aren't necessarily likely to come across them. They might, but um, it's not a huge audience for that, right? So, um, uh, uh, but anyway, it's still an audience and people would people rarely question that. However, when you talk about clinicians publishing to YouTube or publishing a podcast, then there's mixed reactions from other clinicians, which I find is to be bizarre. It's like, okay, if you, if you publish something in a, in a newsletter, a professional newsletter or a journal, totally, it's not only fine, it's totally respected. You publish something on YouTube and there'll be people that'll say like, why are you doing that? Or that's unethical. You know, like I was attending and I've talked about this before. I was attending an ethics training, um, not that very, not that long ago. And the training was specifically on the ethics of clinicians using public media. And obviously I was very excited about that training. I was like, well, this is right up my alley. You know, this is before I decided to write this piece. And I'm like, oh, you know, ethics of, of therapists using public media. And uh, I thought I was going to learn something and blah, blah, blah. All I learned was that clinicians are paranoid and bo- about using public media. And the consensus, at least among the people who were talking, is that mental health professionals should never use public media. And particularly social media. End of discussion. That's that's that was that was the finding. You know, I remember one therapist stood up and said um, she proclaimed that she talked with her husband, and because her, her husband's in in IT, and she said, and after I talked with him, uh, I determined that it's unethical and unwise for mental health clinicians to even have a personal Facebook page regardless of the privacy, privacy settings. And no one countered her, including the trainer. If I was the trainer, especially now after writing this, and someone stood up in a training in the audience and said, I believe it's unethical for a therapist to have a Facebook page, I would, I would absolutely challenge that. But at this training, the, either the trainer didn't think they could or didn't actually disagree with that point of view because that's how it ended. Um, it seemed to me like the trainer wanted it to be a little bit more of a balanced conversation, but often the paranoid people win in these arguments. And, and I think the trainer ran out of time because the the time of the training ran out and he did, I don't, he didn't get a chance to kind of wrap it up and bring it back. Plus he probably was worried that if he spoke out against the general consensus of the vocal minority of people or vocal people saying it was unethical to do anything on public media, I, I, I bet at least I would feel this way if I was in his position that um, he might've been worried about being called out as being unethical because he had a more um, nuanced position on clinicians using public media. So, so there's all that kind of stuff. Now I go into, you know, in this piece, I go into research on many studies finding that both clients and uh, other practitioners, uh, when you're trying to reach them, when you're trying to reach trainees, when you're trying to reach other therapists, when you're trying to reach clients, uh, and the general public, the best way to disseminate reliable psychological information is through popular forms of, of communication like the internet. It's not through peer-reviewed journals. If you want to get the word out to therapists about something, you the, if you really are interested, so that's the thing that I often say to people. It's like, okay, there are things that clinicians need to know. 
They need to be up to date on ethics. They need to be up to date on research. They need to bone up on their, on their skills. Well, our traditional ways of reaching those people are fine, but they're not as good as the internet. Uh, If you want to communicate to other therapists that it's unethical to do X, Y, and Z, uh, peer-reviewed journal is fine. Writing a book is fine. Writing an article in a public, you know, a professional publication is fine. But if you make a YouTube video, on average, you're going to reach 100 to, you know, 100,000 more people than you would otherwise. And that's obvious, right? That's, that's just obvious. If you post something on YouTube, if you post something on Twitter, especially if you know how to uh, build an audience so that people are paying attention, you're going to reach so many more people. So if you're going to make a positive difference in the world and you're going to affect change, then you have to be on the internet. Uh, what I wish is that every peer-reviewed journal article author was also equally as adept at getting on the internet. I wish that, um, you know, university, uh, you know, publish or perish cultures were not just around getting in peer-reviewed journals, respectable journals, but also getting as many clicks on YouTube. And that we are not there yet. It will be there eventually. But um, and, you know, that'll have its own pros and cons. But we got to get with it, people like the Peer-reviewed journals, um, well, anyway, that's I'll get off that high horse. <laughs> um, anyway, so then I go on to talk about how important it is that we should be trying to reach a bigger audience. Like I give a stat that worldwide about uh, 1.1 billion people currently suffer f- from a mental disorder. Just think about that. Around the world, over a billion people currently suffer from a mental disorder. And we're not talking about like mild PTSD or mild anxiety. These are people who qualify for the full-blown labels in the DSM. And these are difficult things, you know, panic disorder, full-blown PTSD, schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, uh, dissociation, this kind of stuff. It's, It's rough to live with that. So not only do you have all those people, but how many of those people have access to affordable care, even in our own country? How many of those people ha- even know where to turn? Uh, I'm guessing, and I couldn't find stats on this. I, I, I tried to find it. I didn't look that hard. But I'm guessing that at least half of those billion people around the globe don't have access to mental health care at all. Someone who lives in rural Afghanistan, for example. Uh, the chance that they even know what a therapist is, is in question. So uh, how do we reach those people? It's through the internet. You know, now a lot of people also don't have access to the internet, but many, many people have access to the internet. Now the internet is not a substitute for therapy, but to all those people who don't have access to anything, we got to do something. And I get emails all the time from people along these lines. They'll say like, they'll 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 say things like, "I'm in therapy, and the podcast also helps me." But I get emails from people in other countries and, and other societies that will say, "I don't have access to therapy in my area. We don't really have health. We don't really have therapists like you." And the way that you talk on the podcast really helps me. 
Now, the podcast is not treatment. I don't think anyone has ever um, mistaken this podcast for a treatment, but every little bit counts. I mean, think about yourself. If you listen to this podcast, particularly, I guess, if you're a patron, you know, think about it, whether or not the podcast and the conversations and the sentiments um, and the questions that have been answered, have they enhanced your life in a well-being or even a mental health manner? Uh, now, for many of you, maybe not. Maybe it's just uh, for some other purpose. But for many people, it is. And the podcasts I listen to along these lines do that for me, you know. Uh, I, I've, I have, I'm not a regular listener to mental illness happy hour, but I've listened to it and find that, um, it, it can be very enriching. Normalizing is a big thing to hear people talk about their own struggles and be like, Oh, wow, I'm not alone. And this is a thing. And, Hmm, you know, this is what you do for that. And I shouldn't try to be closeted around this issue. So that kind of stuff is huge. And for clinicians to, just sit in their offices. Now, I'm not asking all clinicians to be on public media. What I'm saying is that we need a a much larger percentage of us to be on public media. uh, And the other thing is, is I don't, I don't think I have to cajole cajole people, you know, people enter mental health field because they want to make a positive difference. But what's not being done is no one is being trained, encouraged, supervised, or given the ethical guidelines to do so. And so they just shy away from it in my, in my experience. I know so many mildly narcissistic therapists like myself who love to talk, <laughs> especially at my university. Teachers are inherently somewhat narcissistic. Not all of them, but most of them are like me. Uh, not, you know, terribly narcissistic, but, you know, mild, on the mild end of the spectrum. And man, when you get them talking, they're passionate. They got things to say. They've thought about these things and they've talked about it before. And uh, you've probably heard some of my colleagues on the podcast uh, come on the podcast and they're like this. And so it's not like I have to convince them to get on soapboxes and say stuff and have positive energy to making a difference. It's that they don't know how or they don't know the process or they're afraid of the ethics or they're afraid of what the internet will do to them or something. And what I'm here to say is there's a way to do this. Um, uh, you know, listening to this podcast episode for one, uh, reaching out to people who are expert in this area and, and getting some guidance from them. Um, you know, I'm, I doubt there's any kind of formal trainings around this or continuing education around this, or at least the good ones. I mean, I tried to attend one and I did, not think it was very good. I think he started the conversation. I think what happened was that the training I went to on ethics of using social media, I think what happened was the trainer actually wanted to get an interesting debate and conversation going because the best ethical conversations tend to be a debate format. But I think what he didn't count on was how backward the students in the audience would be around this and how it quickly descended into this paranoia around internet in general. (laughs) And so I think it it derailed him. And anyway, um, so then I provide a, um, an email from a listener. Uh, I always feel funny, like reading these, um, positive reviews, but I think it, it, it bears to be read. Um, so someone from the UK wrote me and said, Thanks for your contribution to the world. 
Your efforts increase possibilities for empathy and compassion between people and move us a little closer in reducing unnecessary suffering in the world. I think you're providing a point of access to information that is, sadly, often locked behind the doors of a a university lecture, theater, or the therapist office. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the future of humanity is dependent on the democratization of this knowledge. You are making a difference, unquote. So that perfectly encapsulates um, the power of, you know, when clinicians use public media. Um, I, I don't consider myself to be that unusual in my point of views, in my passion, in my compassion. I just am one of the few people who happen to be on the internet with it. So um, I, I really wish more people would do it. Um, and I provide some other quotes of some people who said that the podcast has helped them with their uh, their career. And, oh, I like this bit here. Um, the internet is full of laypersons offering their opinion about psychology topics. For example, there are articles written by journalists diagnosing from afar former President Barack Obama with several disorders, such as narcissistic personality disorder and psychopathy. Since the, since the inception of the internet, all controversial public figures have been, quote-unquote, diagnosed extensively by online commentators. If we don't participate in this online conversation, the public can be easily led astray. You only have to look at Twitter or your Facebook feed to, to see the evidence of this phenomenon. Without us organizing a strong presence in the media, many dubious, unchecked notions become established facts in the public sphere, while evidence-based professional viewpoints go unheard. We can complain about this all we want, but until we actually do something about it, we are perhaps part of the problem. So I I hope that um, it doesn't sound too uh, preachy. Um, Let's see. Yeah, so I talk about more. Oh, here's another one about uh, supervision. So not only reaching people who are suffering, but also reaching other clinicians. And here's my paragraph on that. Internet media can also be used for training purposes to improve clinician competency and client care. Disseminating quality guidance to clinicians is particularly important given that research has found that 93% of the participants were receiving inadequate or even harmful supervision. So I just want to pause here. Um, There's this very important landmark study by Ellis et al. 2013, and, and other studies have found similar results, maybe not as high of a percentage, but, but similar. They found that 93, so they surveyed a bunch of supervisees, you know, trainees, uh, therapy trainees, and found that 93% of them were receiving inadequate or even harmful supervision. I think something like a third of them were receiving harmful supervision. So only 7% of the participants were receiving adequate Supervision, and by adequate, it means the person, the supervisor, knows what they're doing. They are ethical. They are attentive. They uh, provide a safe atmosphere where the trainee can say what they want to say. Um, they create an atmosphere where the trainee feels like they're learning something. They're supported. They're um, mentored. All those, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, 
vast majority, 93% of, and this was a large study. And the other thing was this study, they didn't just look, they didn't just ask the supervisees, are you getting good enough supervision? What they did is they actually uh, figured out a way to kind of measure that from the outside. And they found that um, 93% were receiving bad supervision. And a third were even getting harmful supervision. And if you've heard me talk about this before, I'll say it again. I believe that that's totally consistent with my experience with supervisors. I've had, I think, 17 supervisors in my career, and uh, two of them were what I would call like proper supervisors who were safe mentors who knew things and really taught me things. Then there's this, there's like, I don't know, 12 or so in the middle who were just like not helpful. They were uh, they weren't they weren't terrible, but they weren't very useful and kind of a waste of time at times. And then there's like three or four at the low end who were actually harmful to me, traumatic to me. And I don't use that word lightly. Uh, that's the landscape of supervision. And, it, and that's why I wrote my book called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision as a way to kind of guide supervisors t- to help them really uh, address all 19 roles that need to be addressed in supervision. And uh, so until we change that landscape, which I don't see happening anytime soon, we need to be able to reach clinicians and help them with their careers, not only to help them, but also to help the clients. I mean, think about all the clients out there who are suffering with bad therapy because the therapist never got proper education and proper supervision. Supervision is perhaps the most important part of a therapist development. It's one thing to read stuff in a book. It's a whole other thing to have a supervisor looking over your shoulder and saying, that was good. That was not good. Here's what you should be doing. Ah, I see you think this way. That needs to change. Ah, I see you're thinking this way. That's great. Keep doing that. What a great thing you're doing. That's where the development of a clinician is born. And Without a proper relationship and without a well-trained – the other thing I'm doing is I'm, with this podcast is I'm training the supervisors, right? I'm not just providing this, this virtual podcast form of supervision and consultation to working therapists, but I'm also helping supervisors to supervise their supervisees. So it, it all helps, right? It's, it's presumably if I'm providing good guidance, I guess, is the thing. So – uh, yeah, I go into more about that. Um, uh, some research has found that media can also be a way for clinicians to stay in touch with their clients in between sessions. Now, some might say, well, that sounds a little dubious, and it could be. But um, from my own practice, I have some clients who listen to the podcast, uh, not maybe every episode, but some of the episodes, and they'll talk with me afterwards and they'll, they'll be like, yeah, I listened to your episode on this or that. And it kind of helps me with this. And so we can use podcast episodes as this adjunct to therapy, which is why I always have to make sure what I'm talking about on the podcast, I, I, you know, am okay with clients listening to. Um, one of the things that I've been benefiting from recently is when clients are listening to my attachment theory episodes. Uh, I talk about attachment theory often with my clients. It's often the way that I see my clients and their issues. And it's a lot easier for me if I can just have them listen to a few hours of a podcast episode or a, two, you know, a few episodes. 
and have them uh, learn about attachment theory and how it applies to themselves, it's much easier for me to do that than to spend that time in the session trying to educate them on attachment theory. And sometimes people will ask me, so do you just teach clients attachment theory? Uh, That seems like a weird thing to do in therapy. And I say, absolutely. For me to, when I have taught clients about attachment theory effectively and applied it to their own life, it is powerfully insightful to clients. I mean, a lot of you have written in and said that the attachment theory deep dive episodes really helped you. It helped me, incidentally. Um, you know, that's why I love the theory so much. I, I learned this theory decades ago and I was like, whoa. And as I started to really apply it, it started to make, it started, everything started to make sense to me. And a lot of you felt the same way after listening to that, to that 17 hour deep dive. Well, it's the same for clients. How is it, how is it any, how is that trans transformation and helpfulness any different for clients? Well, um, you could spend 17 hours explaining that to your clients, or you could actually do things on public media that could be an adjunct. Now it doesn't have to be a podcast. It could be a post on Facebook. It could be an Instagram thing. It could be a short YouTube video, five minutes on this or that, you know, it doesn't have to be as involved it, but, um, the point is, is that. Um, some research, and, and certainly my experience, it, is that when we use public media and our clients are following that, it can actually help the treatment. And shouldn't we do that for our clients if, it, if it's not too much to, to ask? Um, all right, let me read this next paragraph. We can also use media to advocate for marginalized groups. According to the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy Code of Ethics, Therapists are defined by a commitment to service, advocacy, and public participation, which is considered equal in importance to our clinical work. Psychologists are also held to a similar standard in that the American Psychological Association Code of Ethics states that that psychologists need to be aware of their professional and scientific responsibility to society. The American Counselor Association and the National Association of Social Workers also hold a core professional value of promoting social justice. It is clear that among all the various professions in our field of mental health, ethical practice involves thinking beyond clients to society at large. So I point this out to say that right there in all of our ethical codes, it states that you have a responsibility not only to your clients, but to society. And that is a call that is uh, now you're not going to be sued if you don't have a podcast. That's not the point. The point is, is that our professional organizations have wisely stated affirmatively that we have a responsibility to everybody. Now, one individual isn't going to save everybody, but we can't just hole up in our offices and work on just our clients. We have a responsibility to society to advocate. And I go on here. Anyone paying attention can see our social ills of today. For example, a large volume of empirical research has found that persons with mental illness or disabilities are stigmatized and discriminated against, and thus they avoid seeking treatment. Additionally, according to recent polls, A majority of Americans say racism is a major problem in our society, and 42% of women say that they have faced sexism on the job. 
In response to these and other findings, I do my part by discussing pro progressive topics in a way that laypersons can understand. I try to translate empirical data and the prevailing research in an engaging manner. For example, there is a sizable and vocal group of men on the internet who deny the research on sexism and believe that men are in fact the oppressed gender, like incels and MGTOW people. I engage with these men every week in an attempt to engage and change their hearts and minds. Many times I have thrown up my hands and given up, but then I remember that without some contact with people like me, these people will be lost in a sea of propaganda. On the internet, there, it, there, are, there are a lot of charismatic, destructive voices persuading entire sections of our society. And without a strong opposition from clinicians, researchers, and others, I worry about the fate of our culture. Um, and then I go on. The internet craves our voice on these matters. On the podcast listener survey that I you know, did last year, a number of respondents indicated their favorite part of the podcast was the focus on social justice topics such as sexism, homophobia, racism, ableism, homelessness, and mental health stigma. Contrary to the seemingly popular notion that clinicians should not use social media, it could actually be considered unethical that we don't collectively do more to advocate on all media platforms. If we are to truly help others, we cannot sit quietly in our offices and depend on others to provide the clinical voice. We must reach out to where people live, which is more and more predominantly on the internet. But first, we must consider the risks. So let's get into the risks. So one of the main ethical concerns that is always talked about is confidentiality and privacy for clients, supervisees, and students. As you can see, I'm talking not just about clients, but I'm also talking about supervisees and students because we have ethical codes that actually apply to all that as well. And um, sometimes we can get a little relaxed around supervisees and trainees. And it is a little bit more relaxed and a little less worrisome, but it, a lot of the uh, issues apply. Um, this, you know, supervisees are allowed the same confidentiality as clients, and so um, that's why I'm including all that in here. So before we publish things to public media, Twitter, YouTube, podcasting, we need to really be careful about you know, protecting the confidentiality of our clients and supervisees and trainees. And, um, you know, think about, and it, I've said this before is sometimes I find that I have to remind therapists to be confidential, particularly therapists who work in, um, in, in agencies because in agencies or if you work in a school or something, there's just this general tendency to erode the confidentiality culture. You know, I'm in a private practice, so it's pretty easy for me to have clients uh, to, to stay within confidentiality. I get, I don't get a lot of requests for people to, you know, for me to break confidentiality. When you work at an agency or particularly when you're in a school, you know, say you go to a school and you're a therapist, you're a contracted therapist there and you're seeing clients sometimes not really in a proper office. You know, I used to see clients in schools in a closet, literally. It was like a, a supply closet for the library. And people would regularly just barge into the you know, closet to get something. And I'd be on the floor playing with some kid. And I'd just be like, God damn. And 
So when, if you work in a school environment like that, uh, not only stuff like that happens, but also teachers will just walk up to you and be like, so, you know, uh, so I heard, or I see you working with little, with little Javier. Uh, can you tell me what's going on? And there's this expectation that you're just going to start blabbing about them because there's this perception that you're an extension of the school, but you're not. And even if you are an extension of the school, you're still beholden to the ethical codes. And so, um, I, I'm often trying to remind everyone, look, you know, the baseline is confidentiality and there are very, very few exceptions to that rule. And, and even if you, and even among those exceptions, you have to make sure you get consultation around that. And you got to make sure your clients understand, um, what they're getting into. Um, for example, I, I always tell clients and most therapists do at the beginning of treatment that if they tell me something about abuse to a child, I'm mandated to report that. But also when a client starts to tell me a story that seems like it's heading into a zone where it's going to mandate me reporting, I instantly remind clients of my mandated reporting, reporting responsibilities because a lot of people forget or they don't really understand what you're saying. And the whole, the whole idea of informed consent is it's, they are giving consent from an informed place. And so when I have a client years later, especially years later, because how are they expected to remember everything that you said years before and um, in, you know, a very rapid intake session. Uh, And so if a client starts to say, yeah, you know, so there's a pretty scary situation last night with my dad, I'd be like, okay, well, I just want to pause you and remind you that if you tell me something that's abusive, I have to report that to the authorities. Um, I'm, I'm happy to do that and I want to support you in that, but I just want you to know going into this conversation what the reality is here. Because a lot of times clients will, um, you know, they'll go into a story and then the, cl- the therapist say, oh, I have to, you know, I, I'm a mandated reporter. I have to report that. And the client's like, oh, what? I don't remember that. And you're like, yeah, well, I told you, you sign in the dotted line. And that kind of trickery is not cool. I, I, for example, just think about yourself. If, if you're a client, would, would you want to be uh, to be tricked into a situation like that. So there's that. Um, so informed consent, which I'll get into later, but confidentiality is a big deal. Also, um, you know, we just really have to uh, create a practice and a culture around that. And if we're going to be on public media, we have to have that culture and um, awareness as well. And that obviously it, it's pretty easy to follow this, this culture uh, for a lot of people. This is the, the risk to confidentiality is actually pretty low in a lot of areas because it's not hard for clinicians to remember, Oh, I shouldn't say the name of my client on Twitter, but there are some temptations given all the different activities in public media uh, for people to break confidentiality uh, enough to create harm for clients. Um, which uh, let me explain. So I give this example sometimes where on Facebook, and I've seen this, a therapist will write something like, ugh, long day, tough clients today, or something like that. Or they'll say something like, oh, I hate borderline clients. And it's, you know, okay, I suppose, to vent with your friends. It's a whole other thing to put it on the fucking internet. (laughs) Um, Even if it's your own personal page, one, it's quite possible that one of your clients will catch wind of a comment like that. Two, it really makes us look bad when you comment like that. Uh, it, it's okay if you're around other therapists and you're getting support and they understand things. But as soon as you let that out into the general public, 
they don't necessarily know the context of that. You know, they see a comment like that and they think, huh, are all therapists like that? Do therapists care at all? And a lot of times when you're venting like that, you, you really do care, but you're just wanting to vent. And so that kind of stuff is kind of breaking confidentiality. At the very least, it's unprofessional. And so um, we want to avoid that. Because imagine the thing that I like to say is, okay, for myself, if my th- if I somehow came across my therapist's uh, posting and it said something like, and it, and it was after they saw me, I say, you know, say I saw her at noon and then I see her post at seven o'clock at night and she's like, oh, long day, rough day. So many clients today, just like, you know, I had some tough clients today. I would think, wow, <clears throat> sorry, am I one of those clients? Am I, am I one of those difficult clients? It, it could really harm my perception of our relationship. I might even terminate with a therapist if they said something like that. So that's kind of in the confidentiality discussion. Um, so the the other thing here is uh, more, I think, relevant to this topic is on my podcast, when I talk about clients and trainees, what's the guidelines? You know, some people will say, well, you can never talk about your clients on podcasting. And that's actually not true. Our, our ethical uh, guidelines actually say that if there's a educational or consultation benefit to taking the risk of breaking confidentiality, you can take it as long as you take certain measures to protect the identity of the client. And there are three different methods. One is, is to provide a fictional composite of, of several different individuals. So you just, you make up somebody, but they um, are, they're, they're, they're a composite of, of several different people. Two is to ask for written permission from people, which I will do sometimes. Uh, number three, which I, I actually gave examples in this paper, and I actually reached out to those people and asked if I could give their specific example. Um, number three is to speak in such general terms that the individual would not be identifiable at all, so much so that the individual would not even suspect I was talking about them. So let me give you some examples of these of these three things. So for longer descriptions, for detailed descriptions, I tend to use composites. Like in the attachment deep dive, if you if you listen to that and you remember it, I gave an example of a preoccupied person and I gave an example of an of an avoidant person, and it was like five minute uh, descriptions for each person. Well. If I was talking about a real person, it would be really hard to mask their identity because I wanted to give specifics. I wanted to give like quotes and details of their lives. And that long of a, of a description, if I left the name out, it, it would be pretty easy to, if the person heard it in particular, they'd be like, oh my God, that's me. Because, you know, there's too many specifics there. So for longer descriptions, I do not, and I don't recommend people use real people. You want to use composites. Um, and I, and the other thing you need to say, it's a composite because if someone does actually map onto that, that you don't want them mistaking them, you know, cells for the description you want to say, this is a composite of several different people. It's a fictional person that is typical, but it's, it's not a real person. Um, but for, uh, shorter examples, you can actually give an actual example. Um, for example, I might say something like, years ago, a client of mine often worried about my perception of them and whether or not I was going to abandon them. So 
you know, I might give an example like that for borderline personality. You know, I might say, years ago, I worked with someone with borderline, and she was very worried about the way I saw her, and she was frequently worried about the whether or not I would abandon her. So, right, so that I'm, I'm actually thinking about a very specific person when I give that example. But the chance that the person would know it was them would be pretty slim because it's so general, right? I mean, a, perhaps every borderline client that anyone has ever worked with has had those issues. But uh, for, authentic, for authenticity's sake, uh, it, it, it's more educational and more impactful when you're actually talking about a specific person. But you can only do that if you give like extremely limited information. The other guideline to this is to not talk about current and clients or trainees because that limits the pool. So if you talk about anyone, make sure it was from a long time ago. Now, if your career is only three years long, then that's something to think about. You might not actually be able to talk about any of your clients until you've had a number of years into the profession where you've had enough contact with enough people where it'd be hard to zero in. You know, say you're six months into your career and you've only had, say, I don't know, 15 different clients. Well, if you're going to talk about one of your clients, even if it's in a very general sense, it, it wouldn't be hard for someone to figure out who that person was, not only for the client to figure out who it was, but also for other people to triangulate and figure out, you know, oh, that's my friend or, oh, that's my sister. Um, so that's another thing to think about. Um, another thing to think about is uh, that it has to be reasonable. So you can actually accidentally break confidentiality. Like, so let's say I give a very, you know, I, let's say I give that example. Like years ago, I worked with a borderline client and she was very concerned about the way I saw her and she was very worried that I was going to abandon her. And let's say that she listens to the podcast and she's like, oh my God, that's me. And let's say she, you know, she just, she just feels it. And let's say she emails me and she says, was that me? You know, that was me you're talking about, I think. Well, uh, now, if I ever got an email like that, I'd say, nope, it wasn't you. Or um, I'm sorry, I can't really say if it was you or not, because that would, if I said it wasn't you, then that would be revealing some information about who that person was. I just can't say. Um, I've never had this happen to me, and I can't imagine it happening. But if it did... Um, and let's say the person was, you know, they said, oh my God, that's absolutely me. Or let's say another person, uh, a friend of the client says, oh my God, I think that's so-and-so. And I think, cause I know that, so I know that my sister saw Kirk years ago. I bet you that, you know, that's who he's talking about. Well, in essence, that's a, that's a violation of confidentiality, but it's an unreasonable violation in that how did that person manage to randomly guess that connection it it's it's so unreasonable to to think that enough people would, be, would hear it and they would correctly identify that so you can have situations where um confidentiality is broken but it just is so weird that they managed to make that connection that it's you did all the reasonable things to protect the confidentiality and somehow like this random thing happened where they were able to um, figure it out. Now, I've actually never heard of a situation like that. I've never even heard a case study of a situation like that. But it's just another thing to think about in relation to me being in a podcast. Because 
the confidentiality when for, for non-public media therapists, it's not that hard to do. You know, you're at a training or you're at a consultation. There's only like 10, 20, 30 people there. So the chance that any one of those people is going to know who, who you're talking about is pretty slim. But when you're doing a podcast and you're putting it on the internet and conceivably the entire world has access to that, the chances of being discovered go up astronomically. So you have to be even more buttoned up about your confidentiality practices if you're going to do things on public media. So the next section I'm going to talk about is boundaries. And this is actually a pretty important one. It applies to a lot of different things. And I just thought I'd read the piece here. Ethical dilemmas often involve boundaries. When one of my clients asks a personal question, should I answer it? If a friend refers their neighbor to my practice, should I take the client? If a client gives me a gift, should I refuse it? According to Guthiel and Gabbard's 1993 terms, are these non-harmful boundary crossings or are these harmful boundary violations? So we have boundary crossings, we have boundary violations. Although many clinicians might have clear-cut answers, the solutions to these ethical dilemmas have varied from time and place. For the first several decades of our profession, no formal ethical standards existed. As a consequence, several prominent figures in early psychotherapy, Sandor Ferenczi, Frida Fromm-Reichmann, Otto Rank, Karen Horney, and others, had sexual relationships with their clients and even married some of them. Based on the examples set by these early pioneers, these sorts of boundary crossings persisted through the 20th century. In the 1990s, research found that 3% of male counselors reported having sex with a client, and sexual impropriety was the second most common malpractice claim. Increased clinical awareness and public shame eventually led to a cultural shift in the field of psychotherapy toward an emphasis on boundaries, which were seen as a preemptive barrier to the slippery slope toward a sexual relationship. Today, not only is this boundary crossing frowned upon, but it is one of the only crossings that is specifically identified as an ethical violation and a crime in many areas. As time progressed, new therapists entering the field were trained to be wary of these slippery slope boundary crossings, such as seeing a client in coffee shops and excessive self-disclosure, mostly in the effort of preventing a sexual relationship. Based on my graduate school experience, trainees are not given the broader context of these precautions and consequently develop a rigid, dogmatic approach to ethical decision-making, one that involves following the rules for the rule's sake rather than for the client's sake. Often in consultations with other clinicians, the knee-jerk, reactions, the knee-jerk reaction is to emphasize the importance of establishing firm boundaries. Whenever there is a scenario in the gray zone, Clinicians tend to react out of fear. For example, I'm a member of a Facebook consultation group for supervisors, and a member asked if it was okay to refer her client's daughter to her supervisee. The immediate response was short and to the point. No, never, absolutely not. Arnold, so just to chime in here, just to summarize what I'm saying here, is that um, in the beginning, there were no boundaries, uh, no official boundaries anyway. There were recommendations by Freud and others for sure, but not formal. And as a consequence, 
many early therapists, uh, many early psychoanalysts, men and women professionals included, would have sex and marry their clients. And this became embarrassing to our profession as it became more well uh, researched and understood, and there were more lawsuits in the latter 20th century. Um, And as a result, uh, the profession responded rather late, I would say, by uh, you know, researching this and making recommendations, and also by specifically saying in our ethical codes that you can't have sex with your clients. There's there's very few things in our ethical codes that are very explicitly um, rule based, and having sex with, with our clients is is one of those things. There's you know, there's no ethical code that says you can't take a gift from a client. There are ethical codes that pertain to how to make a decision about that, but there's no there's no hard line in the sand that says you can't take a gift from a client. But there is a hard line of sand about sex. And uh, so in the effort to help people, and what they found was, is that uh, by just telling people don't have sex with your clients, it didn't really work. Uh, what they found was that people would go down this road where it was, you know, they would meet at a coffee shop for a session. They would have a drink after a session. They would maybe hug each other a little longer in a session. They, the therapist would self-disclose a little bit more. And this, none of these things were having sex with a client, but they would lead to having sex with a client. And so what they found was like, okay, what, what are the behaviors that lead to having sex with a client, which causes harm to clients, by the way. That's why we don't want to have sex with clients, because it causes harm almost all the time. And uh, so they started teaching us. And I remember I was in graduate school in the 90s, and I remember these rules being taught to me. But what I don't remember being taught is why the rules existed at all. They were just taught to us like, these are the rules. The, you know, you need to have good boundaries. You need to um, do this. You need to do that. And the broader context was not emphasized at least, uh, but or at the very, uh, and at most, maybe wasn't um, taught to us at all. So uh, understanding why the rules exist help people to follow the rules. There's nothing wrong with saying, look, you probably shouldn't meet people in a coffee shop for a session. You probably shouldn't have a drink with a client. But what ended up happening was all these slippery slope rules became considered by many people to be hard and fast rules. Like, um, you know, never self-disclose too much in session or something. You know, and if you ask people, well, why? Why should I not self-disclose in session? They would say, well, it's just against the rules. It's unethical. But that's actually not true. The reason why we established those boundaries was to avoid client harm. And there's a number of different ways clients can be harmed by that, which I'll get into later. But um, because it's hard to understand, the, we, don't, we don't train people long enough. I, didn't, I certainly didn't get training. The, 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 every, everything I know about ethics has been from my own investigation and my own um, learning on this through experience. And, uh, uh, and so when you take like just one or two classes, three classes on ethics in, in your graduate training program, you basically walk away with this idea of like, um, well, okay, these are the two things I've, I've seen people walk away with. And these are people with doctorates too. They will walk away with this idea that you should avoid anything that is generally frowned upon and you should be extremely rigid about your rules. And so I've seen that certainly like the woman who said you shouldn't have a Facebook page. That's that position. The other position I've seen people take is, well, 
every rule is squishy. And so really, it's all relative and we don't really need to follow any rules. I've seen some people go that route. That's the more kind of psychopathic deviant route, which there's certainly a number of therapists that fit that bill. And they're not evil. They're, it's just a there's, a, there's a certain kind of personality that, um, uh, and I'm actually one of those people, by the way. Uh, I, I used to kind of be like this, but um, I didn't, I hope I didn't do anything that terrible. But uh, people who were just like, well, you know, rules, rules, schmules, I could figure it out on my own. And they, they just kind of discount the whole thing uh, in, in general. You know, maybe they're like, yeah, I'm not going to have sex with a client, but you know, I can, I can text with clients. I can, I can meet with them after work. You know, what's the big deal? And now, the rigid person isn't wrong, and the loose person isn't wrong, but I find both of them have extremely limited understanding of the ethical reasons and the ethical decision-making and uh, for these kinds of behaviors. And when it comes time for them to justify their, their behavior, either in consultation or in a lawsuit, they don't have the ability to do that because they just don't have a sophisticated understanding of this sort of thing. And as time has gone on, what I've realized, in, in order to have a sophisticated understanding of these things, you have to kind of be like a lawyer. You have to think like a lawyer, which is a very different way to think, honestly. And the more and more I talk to lawyers, the more and more I sort of absorb the way that they think about things. Um, like the law is kind of similar to ethical codes in that there's a lot of things that are in the gray zone, right? Like the Trayvon Martin um, situation. And some, you know, some people look at that and say like, well, obviously that was murder and Zimmerman should go to jail. And other people are like, no, 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 he, he was standing his ground, blah, blah, blah. So it's, the law works similarly to ethical codes where some people will look at a situation and say, well, clearly that was an ethical violation. And other people look at it and go, no, no, that was not an ethical violation. So, and that ambiguity is tough for us to accept, but it needs to be understood because that's just the reality. But what that doesn't mean is we we just we we don't just throw everything away and say like, well, it's all relative. Who cares? What it does mean is you you have to really get to know the consensus understanding around each of these topics. But anyway, so uh, what I was taught was, um, you, you know, you have to follow all the rules, and you, you know, there's no real context to that, and so the majority of people I come into contact with have that knee jerk reaction of firm boundaries and they don't really understand why they're doing it. Um, and I go on to talk about here, Arnold Lazarus, a distinguished and leading figure in the field of psychotherapy responded to these knee jerk reactions by writing, I have met far too many psychotherapists who practice defensively, allowing their fear of attorneys and licensing boards to dictate how they treat clients. Arnold Lazarus goes on to write that although books on ethics have become long and complicated, there are just a few imperatives that need to be respective. Quote, do not exploit, disparage, abuse, undermine, or harass a client, and steer clear of any sexual contact. We must also appreciate the significance of confidentiality, integrity, respect, and informed consent, unquote. So I love this quote because it really just encapsulates every hard and fast, uh, the most severe kinds of ethical considerations that we have to consider. And it really, uh, I think, you know, uh, points out that it's not hard to be ethical, I guess, because it's not a, most of the ethical things that we need to avoid are intuitive. You know, don't exploit your client. Like um, you're talking to, you know, your client is a, 
a, you know, a Wall Street trader. And you're like, hey, you know, if you want me, how about I give you better treatment if you give me some insider knowledge on how to invest my money? That's exploitation, right? Or, um, you know, if you if you want me to if you want me to treat you well, and if you want me to solve your depression, you're gonna have to come to three sessions a week because I need to put my kid through private school. That's exploitation. Um, disparage. Don't disparage your clients. You know, don't don't make them feel crappy. Don't abuse them. That's pretty obvious, right? Um, don't undermine them. Don't harass your clients. Uh, that's pretty easy, right? And don't have sex with your clients. That's pretty easy too. Pretty easy, intuitive. And also appreciate the importance of being, of upholding confidentiality and integrity of your treatment, meaning that you don't just treat your clients willy-nilly, that you, you have like a system that's evidence-based, that kind of thing. And that you respect your clients and you provide informed consent. So those are pretty easy to follow, right? And as long as you're doing those things, you're probably doing 99.9% of the ethical codes that you're supposed to be following. All the other things are flexible. And I go on to say, so aside from those fairly simple and obvious ethical directives, Lazarus explains that all the rest of the ethical codes are negotiable. They're not insignificant or irrelevant, but they're flexible to the multifactorial situation at hand. Other ex- other ethical experts agree with this nuanced position, and this flexibility is central when considering using media as a mental health clinician. Okay, then I go on to say, before discussing the flexible end of the spectrum, let us illuminate the rigid side. In the professional literature, it's generally accepted that boundary violations should be avoided when possible. Common examples of boundary violations include socializing with a client at a dinner party, inappropriate or unwanted touching, and frequent out-of-session communication. For example, texting with a client as if they're a friend or a romantic interest. There are several purposes to these boundaries, including avoiding the slippery slope towards sexual relations, and also subtly communicating to the client uh, that they are responsible for the therapist's emotional needs. So those are reasons why we, we want to be mindful of these, of these boundaries. Um, and I provide the following example, and I reached out to this podcast listener to make sure that I, I had uh, approval to provide this example. This is a real-life example. I was hired as an ethical consultant by a woman whose clinician allowed himself to slide down that slippery slope toward a sexual relationship. Uh, that From his side, not from her side. At first, the client was very much attached to her older male therapist. He made her feel special and valued. As therapy progressed, and as the relationship became more intense, he would occasionally hold her hand while she was crying. This was the beginning of the slippery slope. Holding a client's hand is generally considered acceptable, but without proper precautions, it can lead to more concerning boundary crossings. In another session, he hugged her while she cried. In following sessions, he held her longer. That eventually progressed to him holding her throughout the session while he caressed her body and told her how attracted he was to her. According to her, she appreciated their deep connection, but she also knew that she was playing with fire. 
She was certain that their next session would involve overt sexual activity, so she terminated. Later, she began to feel she had been exploited by him and that he had used her for his own sexual needs. She became justifiably upset and angry, so she complained to the licensing board. After a long investigation, his license was revoked. Years later, she would tell me that she was still processing the trauma of that relationship. This demonstrates why boundaries are critical to client well-being and to our professional reputation. Um, So that's an example of the slippery slope. Now, holding the hand of a client is not necessarily a slippery slope, right? And it's not necessarily an ethical violation. In fact, it, it probably would would it be a very weird situation if you held a client's hand, especially if the client was willing to hold your hand for you to be found to to be an uh, an ethical violation. But when we're mindful of our boundaries and our impulses and this, and our tendency to go down different slippery slopes ourselves as therapists, then we can help that guide our behavior well before getting to the more concerning behaviors like, what this therapist did where he was holding the client all session long, caressing her and telling her that he was sexually attracted to her. So if if he could go back in time, he probably wishes he never would have initiated any physical contact with his client because of what it eventually led to, which was harm to the client and also his license being revoked. Um, so let me give another example here from it, from another podcast listener. Boundary crossings don't have to lead to sex for harm to occur. A podcast listener provided the following example. She wrote that she liked her therapist, but that she had terminated because she was moving out of the area. So the client was moving out of the area. While at a store in her new town, something triggered her trauma and she became distressed. She contacted her therapist over texting or email or something. And the therapist called her immediately and talked her through that distress. This boundary crossing was not harmful because, you know, she helped the, she helped her former client, but it opened the door to future harm. Later, the client was triggered again and the client once more reached out to her former therapist. This time the therapist did not respond. This happened a few more times for the client and the client said she was hurt and wondered why her therapist was ignoring her calls for help. The therapist should have established a boundary from the start by setting expectations that she won't be providing services after termination and by emphasizing the importance of the client hiring a new clinician in the new town. I speculate that the therapist cared about her former client and did not want to leave the client out on a limb, which is understandable. I have felt that pang of guilt many times after termination. To avoid confusion, hurt feelings, and possible litigation, Clinicians need to manage their unhelpful reactivity and proactively establish boundaries in light of potential client harm. Along these lines, other common examples of potential boundary, potential harmful boundary crossings include letting sessions go long, responding immediately to frequent texts or email when that is not the therapist's general approach, and disclosing unprocessed erotic or romantic countertransference to a client. So it, so in this uh, in these examples, this you know doesn't lead to sex. So just because a boundary crossing doesn't lead to sex doesn't mean that harm can't occur for sure. So you have to look at those as well. You know, letting a session go long 
in and of itself isn't a, an ethical violation, but that kind of thing can turn it, but it's a boundary crossing and it can lead to client harm, meaning that uh, in the letting a session go along, the client could expect that to happen again. And when it doesn't happen again, they could be hurt by that. That's why you need to maintain boundaries. You need to maintain the frame of therapy so, because unless you're willing to do it every time, then you shouldn't really ever do it unless you really are explicit. Like, the reason why I'm going over is because of X, Y, or Z. Like I had a client once who their daughter had died suddenly from um, a freak accident. And um, one, well, I actually get into that um, later in this piece. So I'll, I'll describe that later. <laughs> okay. So just going on with my piece here, having established that boundaries are often helpful and necessary Excessive boundaries can hinder treatment unnecessarily and prevent us from helping the public at large through public media. Barnett points out that it is generally acceptable among ethics experts that many boundaries can be crossed without harm to the client. For example, in the beginning of my career, a family client left a message informing me that their teenage daughter had died from an accident from an accidental overdose and that they wanted to meet me meet with me as soon as possible. If I was to, if I was to uphold rigid professional boundaries, I would have replied that I do not provide crisis services and that they were free to discuss this in my office during our next appointment, which was two weeks out. However, in this rare and terrible circumstance, I contemplated the bigger picture. I decided to cross that boundary by scheduling an in-home session with them that evening since I figured that they needed to stay at home for various reasons. In their living room, we met for over three hours, which is much longer than my regular one-hour session. We talked, we cried, and sometimes we just sat in silence. It was one of the most important sessions of my career. Based on my experience with them, I was fairly sure that the family would not interpret this crossing as a new feature of our relationship, and I resolved to not letting this be the first step down a slippery slope towards harmful boundary violations. Months later, they thanked me for being there through the most difficult time of their lives. If I had followed rigid reactionary rules, I would have missed the opportunity to be the therapist that they needed. All of this is in line with Barnett's assertion that avoiding boundary crossings may prevent potential client harm, but doing so can result in a sterile, distant relationship that lacks the core components of an effective therapeutic relationship. Um, then I go on to say, when inflexible boundaries are applied to particular cultural groups, the clinician may inadvertently contribute to the client's experience of ongoing marginalization. For a portion of my career, I provided in-home therapy for families experiencing poverty, some of whom were undocumented Latinx families. When I arrived at their homes, the families were immensely grateful for my help. I was perhaps the only member of the system of power who treated them with respect and spent the time to get to know each member of their family. As a token of their gratitude, they often offered me food like tamales or cornbread. At first, I would refuse. I was following the rules that were given to me in grad school and supervision. However, over time, I learned that the gift of food was a central tradition for these families and their culture. To refuse the gift 
was sending a message that I did not think they were worthy enough to give me anything of value and that I was not actually interested in their well-being, just like their experience with many other so-called helpers. My service was free of charge to them, and they wanted to pay me in a way that they could, which is with food. Accepting the gifts tangibly showed them that I cared about them and I cared about their homeland. This strengthened our therapeutic relationship and it strengthened their self-esteem. Upon realizing this cultural truth, I shed my inflexible boundary and enjoyed lunches of tamales and corn bread for many months. So in this paragraph, I'm talking about how boundaries need to be flexible, that not accepting a gift is a good guideline and a good boundary to have in general, but sometimes it's, it's actually harmful to the treatment to follow that boundary. So boundaries aren't rules and boundaries are only to the situation and boundaries are flexible and they should be flexible. Okay, so let's go on to talking about multiple relationships or dual relationships. And in my paper, I write about what I would call harmful multiple relationships because I want to delineate between multiple relationships that are not harmful versus ones that are harmful. Well, first off, what is a multiple relationship? What is a dual relationship? Uh, a, A relationship in this context, what we're talking about is that when I have a relationship with a client, that's a professional client therapist relationship. When I have a relationship with a student, that is a uh, professional professor student relationship. When we add other relationships to the to that dyad, then we are engaging in a dual or multiple relationship. That's the terminology that we use. And so, if I was if I had a client that I also supervised as a clinician, then I would have a dual relationship. I would have a relationship with them as a client and I would have a relationship with them as a supervisee or um, uh, other common roles are things like if I were to hire a client to install a roof on my house. So now I have a relationship with them as a client or, and I also have a relationship with them as a contractor for my house. So this is what we call multiple relationships. Now, multiple relationships can be innocuous and they can be harmful. And so multiple relationships that are innocuous are generally not considered ethical violations, but harmful multiple relationships are. So the the reason why we want to avoid multiple relationships with clients and, and trainees is because they can impair the clinician or professor's objectivity. It can, meaning that I, if, if, and the other way, it goes the other direction too. So if a client, so specifically to public media, when I have a client that listens to the podcast, not only do they have a relationship with me as their therapist, but they now also have a relationship with me as the host of the podcast that they listen to. So that's a, that's a multiple relationship. And if that happens, then clients can be harmed in in a lot of different ways. They could learn a lot of things. They didn't want to learn about me. 
they could feel like they have to listen to the podcast or they might feel like they have to talk about the podcast with me, uh, those kinds of things. So it, it can harm the, from the client side, but it could also harm from my side. For example, if I were to hire my client to fix my roof, then what if the roof uh, job that they do isn't very good? Well, I if I just had the relationship with them as my contractor, I would tell them, hey, you got to fix it. You didn't do a good enough job. I might leave a bad review for them on the internet. I might even sue them or something if they really screwed it up. But if they were my client also, well, now I'm in a bind, right? If they screw up the roof job, but I also know that the client is suicidal, what do I do there? Well, I probably don't do anything. And I probably get a very bad job on my roof and I don't take any actions because I don't want to harm my client. Or I do take actions and the client now hates me because I sued them in court. So this is why we don't generally engage in those sorts of multiple relationships because the risk is there um, along those lines. So in the paper, I wrote down some common examples, classic examples of multiple relationships. A clinician becomes friends with a client or trainee. So the clinician is a, is a friend and also the, the person's therapist or educator. Two, a therapist accepts a client who is related to the therapist's friend. So let's kind of go over this. A friend comes to me and says, um, my sister needs a therapist. And then I'm like, okay, I take that client. Well, now I have a potentially harmful dual relationship with that client because they're my client and they're also my friend's sister. So I might bump into them at social gatherings, uh, you know, those kinds of things. So that that's a multiple relationship. It doesn't mean automatic ethical violation, but it raises the risk of harm, which we want to avoid. Third example, a therapist invents a therapist invests in a client business venture. So that's similar to um, hiring someone to fix your roof. A therapist has sex with a client. That's a multiple relationship. A clinician or educator accepts a student as a client. Uh, sorry, a clinician educator accepts a student as a client. So number six, a supervisor hires a supervisee to treat their children. So a uh, imagine if I was supervising someone. Uh, another therapist, and I hired that supervisee to be the therapist for my own children. That would be a dual relationship because I would not only have that person as a supervisee, but they would also be the therapist of my kids, and that can lead to issues. Seven, a therapist loans money to a client. And the last one here, a client finds the therapist on a dating website. So let's drill, in, uh, drill, drill down on this one a little bit. A client is flipping through Tinder and comes across their therapist on Tinder. Right then and there, instant dual relationship. Now, not necessarily an ethical violation, but it's a dual relationship, even if the, the client doesn't swipe right or left. They just go, oh, wow, my therapist is on Tinder. That's interesting. And they just, you know, cancel out and they don't do anything to that person. Well, 
that's an instant dual relationship. Now, in general, therapists should be allowed to date and you know use Tinder and whatever else they want to do. It's a it's a free country, and they shouldn't have to limit themselves in that way. But it is some it is something you have to consider if you're going to go on dating websites. You have to at least somewhat even your married clients might be secretly flipping through those kinds of things, and so. That's although some people might not call it a dual relationship, I I would characterize it that way because the client not only has a relationship with you, with you as their therapist, but they also have a relationship with you as someone in the dating pool of that of that community, and that creates a conundrum for for some clients and some therapists. Again, in general, therapists should be allowed to date and online date, and that's fine. But it needs to be taken into consideration. Like if you are on Tinder as a therapist, you might want to talk with your single clients who you suspect might be using those kinds of things and just say, by the way, I um, you might see me on Tinder <laughs> um, and uh, don't be shocked. I, I've been single for a while. I don't want to get into the details, but... I I just want you to be warned just in the random chance you come across my profile. Um, you know, already any clinician out there would be like, wow, that'd be a really difficult conversation to have. And something to consider before going on those kinds of things. There's a lot of different, while I'm on this tangent, there's a lot of different things that therapists can do, like not using apps like Twitter, but using apps that are um, different than that, that are more specific because tinder you it the the way it works is you can flip through you know faces after faces after faces after faces people after people you could you could flip through a hundred people in the span of a few minutes whereas other uh, websites like um i don't know the other ones it it's it's not that way it's more slow it's a slower process of of flipping through people um and so that's one thing to think about. Another thing that some people will do is they will not um, post within, they'll, they'll put their city somewhere else so that their clients won't happen to come across them or they won't put a picture of themselves. They'll just put up a profile or they'll have a picture of themselves that it's hard to tell who they are and what they look like. Now that's going to seriously limit your online dating responses but something that some therapists will do. Anyway, so there are ways to do it that reduce the risk to the client. Having said that, people should therapists should be allowed to do what, you know, to live their lives. Another thing that uh, is always talked about when we talk about the nuances of multiple relationships is that in small towns, multiple relationships are inevitable. So they can't in, so multiple relationships can't inherently be an ethical violation. So let's say I live in a really small town of just a few hundred people. Well, I'm going to know most of the people in that community. And if I'm going to have a private practice or any kind of a practice, then most of my clients I'm going to have a multiple relationship with. So the, you know, someone come the dentist in town needs a therapist and they hire me because I'm the only therapist in town and they hire me. Well, 
I need to go to a dentist and the dentist is the only dentist in town. So my dentist is also my client. And that is a multiple relationship. And although it's not recommended if you can avoid it in a bigger city, in a smaller town, it's inevitable. And uh, therefore, we have to allow for things like that. We have to be flexible with that. And in a smaller town, you can account for it. You, The dentist comes, to, you know, you, you're already going to the dentist and your dentist talks to you and says, you know what, I, I think I need a therapist and you're the only therapist in town. Is it okay if I come to you? So you sit down with the dentist and you're like, okay, well, here's how this is going to work. You, I need you as my dentist. And you're going to know a lot more about me than, than another client would. But since I'm the only therapist in town, um, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this, we're going to do that, and we're, we're going to do all these things to protect you from, from harm. Um, and, you know, now having said that, if it'd be pretty rare for there to only be one dentist within driving range <laughs> or one therapist within driving range, but I hope you get my point. Now, this doesn't mean that in larger towns, which most therapists exist in, that we can play fast and loose with multiple relationships. What it just means is that we just have to take context into consideration. Okay, so how do we evaluate these multiple relationships specific to public media? Well, we don't have very clear guidelines when it comes to this sort of thing, but we do have fairly clear guidelines when it comes to evaluating multiple relationships in general. The first thing we want to look at is, are the two relationships incompatible in some way, particularly incompatible with your primary relationship, your professional relationship as client therapist or, or a student, you know, instructor or supervisee, supervisor. Now with me, I always think about this. Am I doing anything that's incompatible with my role as a, a clinician to these people? So whenever I do anything on the podcast, I'm always thinking, is what I'm about to do going to somehow interfere with the treatment or the education or the supervision of the people that I am uh, responsible for? And if anything is ever like that, then I, that I either will not talk about it or I will omit it from the podcast altogether. So it's hard to imagine what that would be, you know, you know what exactly, you know, um, hiring someone, hiring a client to fix my roof, as I gave the example earlier in the possible pitfalls, it's pretty clear that there are some incompatibilities there. There's not a lot of clear incompatibilities with a client listening to the podcast. I'll get into self-disclosure later, but specifically when it comes to multiple relationship incompatibility, it's not very likely. In fact, there's a lot of compatibility. I, you know, when I talk about attachment theory, for example, in my podcast, I am uh, completely in line with almost the exact thing, if not the exact same thing, I would say to my students to my clients and to my supervisees. Attachment theory, uh, the, the concepts of it are both interesting to the listeners and important things to be teaching to my students, important things to be teaching to my supervisees, and important things to be teaching and or uh, using with my clients. So there's a lot of compatibility between my public 
media use and my practice and supervision practice. The second thing to look at is, does the secondary relationship privilege my needs over theirs? So this actually does play kind of a role in my public public media, specifically because with my podcast, it's both something that I try to get people to listen to, because the more popular the podcast is, uh, the better, I think. And also because I ask people to become patrons of the podcast, as all of you know. And clients of mine and trainees of mine, because I have power over them and because they're worried about my approval, they might feel obligated to listen to my podcast and to uh, give me accolades for it and to become patrons of the podcast, which involves them actually you know, paying money for that kind of thing. And although being a patron of the podcast is extremely um, lower fee than hiring me as your supervisor. Um, it's still a monetary, you know, expense. And so what I do with that is I really try never to talk about my podcast with my trainees and my clients, particularly my clients. With my clients, I never bring up my podcast. The only way a client would know about my podcast is if they somehow Googled me or they came across it randomly. And with trainees, occasionally I'll mention it kind of, but uh, if you had me as a as an instructor or you had me as a supervisor, you would think that the podcast was something very small in my life because I, I don't talk about it very much. One, because it doesn't really come up. It's, you know, it's not like when I'm a, when I'm providing therapy to a client, my podcast is com- almost completely irrelevant to almost everything we ever talk about. I, in fact, one could say it's always irrelevant to my supervisees. It's occasionally relevant and sometimes I'll occasionally bring it up, but, um, I, when in doubt, I don't because I am mindful of this dual relationship that I have and that I have power. If this is take, for example, I have a supervisee who comes to me and he asks me about attachment theory. Well, I might be tempted to say, actually, I did 17 hours on attachment theory. And if you're interested, you know, you should check it out. Well, that would be not irrational to say. And it, and the supervisee might actually kind of appreciate that sort of resource and might not mind paying or might even really enjoy paying for that access to those episodes. But because I don't want to risk exploiting people in this way, I will, I won't mention it. I'll just say, you know, they'll ask, so say he asked me about attachment theory and I'll say, okay, well, how much do you want to know? And then I'll just take up time and supervision and just, and just talk about it. Now, one could argue that it would be a better use of our time if I just, you know, referenced a particular episode. But in general, because I really don't want to give the impression that I'm looking for people under me to listen and uh, pay for access, I, I just don't talk about it very much. Another subtle thing that I'll do is when they do bring up the podcast, I sort of downplay it a little bit. You know, if a client or a trainee says, oh, I listened to your podcast, da, 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 da. And I'll be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Okay, let's move on. And I, I don't dwell on it because 
I don't want to give them the impression, the false impression, that I'm looking for them to pay attention to that or make me feel better about it or something. You know, when a colleague or a friend or even your therapist does something in public, you feel a certain obligation to pay attention to it and to compliment them on it. If your therapist was in a play, for example, uh, in on Broadway, you would feel obligated to see it, or you might feel a little obligated. And if you did see it, you would feel at least a little obligated to say, oh, I saw you on Broadway, and I thought it was really great. So I, I because I intuited that a long time ago, I almost never talk about it. I uh, you know, sometimes people will ask me, uh, you know, you know, what do your ther- what do your clients think about your podcast? And the first thing I usually say is, I don't think most. I think most of my clients don't even know about my podcast. Now, some do for sure, and they'll talk with me about it. But uh, I imagine most don't, because most people don't listen to podcasts. Now, you out there are podcast listeners, and to you, it might seem very strange that people don't listen to podcasts, but. Take it from me who, you know, bumps into a lot of random people. I can tell you that most people don't listen to podcasts. Most people just don't like long form audio education, entertainment stuff. I love it. As anyone who's listened to the podcast would know, I listen to, I've, I spend anywhere from 25 to 30% of all my hours, not just my waking hours, but all my hours listening to audiobooks and podcasts. <laughs> so I get it, but most people don't. So, yeah. So, so the first question we ask are, are the two relationships incompatible? I don't think my public media really is incompatible with my work with my trainees and clients. Second question is, does the secondary relationship privilege my needs over theirs? And it, I don't think that it does. And, and when it, you know, risks that, ethical problem, I have ways of accounting for that. Now, the last thing I'll say, which I might get into later, is if a trainee or a client does want to become a patron, because let's say they're like, oh, I want access to that stuff. What I do is I just give it to them for free. I say, you're actually barred from becoming a patron of the podcast. You, you're, you're not allowed to. If you become a patron, I will actually cancel you out because I... I don't want there to be that that very clear dual relationship that could be um, harmful to you. And uh, it's just consider it a perk of being a client or, or a trainee of mine that you get access to this sort of thing. Now, I, I, I'm in the process of transition. I, in writing this paper, I, I decided that. I always thought I should do that anyway. And uh, if some of you out there are clients or trainees listening to this right now, because this is a patron-only episode, um, let me know, and please cancel your patronage, and I will you know, just give you access anyway. Um, there's not a way to give you access on Patreon, unfortunately, because Patreon, you need to be a patron, obviously. But you get access to the premium feed on your phone and, and on the website. I can give you that um, for free. The third thing to think about here in terms of multiple relationships is, is the new role an increase in harmful intimacy? So this is a specific question around, is this new relationship, is this secondary relationship 
somehow more intimate in a harmful way. Now, some slightly more intimate relationships aren't going to be harmful. For example, with a supervisee, let's say that I go to a uh, professional, you know, in, in my area, we have the Washington Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, and it's mainly based in Seattle. And so there's a fair amount of get-togethers and trainings and parties. There's a holiday party in, in December we always have. And if I'm going to have a supervisee or a student that attends that, then we are in a dual relationship, right? I am both their supervisor, and I'm also someone who hangs out with them at a professional work party. And there's alcohol and there's food and there's, you know, maybe karaoke or whatever. And so that's a dual relationship. And that's also an increase in intimacy because I am in a much more relaxed atmosphere. There's a lot, I might have, you know, my, the podcast wife might be with me. And so it's more intimate, but is it harmful is the question. So that's, that's the thing. Now let's look at my public media use. So it's pretty unusual. And I would think very unlikely, particularly given the sort of clients I work with that they would feel as though the podcast somehow made them more intimate with me. Now, they're going to be more connected to me in some ways. So, you know, a client of mine who also listens to the podcast, I'm guessing would feel more connected to me because I'm in their earbuds all day long. And then I see them once a week for therapy or something like I would imagine that that would increase the quote unquote connection. But I don't have the sort of clients and I've never had it happen where a client would misinterpret that connection as some sort of deeper intimacy with me. Because let's just go down that road. Let's say we have someone who is prone to that kind of distortion and they're listening to me in their earbuds while they're doing their laundry or driving to work. And they start to feel deeply, deeply connected to me because of the podcast. And they come into session and they talk about how they listen to me all the time and they listen to me at night and they listen to, you know, so far there's nothing wrong with that. And then they say, and I think you and I are much more friends than we are client therapist relationship. And I can relate to you in all these different ways. And I really feel like we should hang out more outside of the therapy office because, you know, we should go to a movie or we should do that. Now I'm in a position as a therapist where I have to tell the client, no, I I can't do that for your own sake, but also for my sake because of ethical boundaries and being sued and that kind of thing. So I'm sorry, I'm going to have to turn you down by by saying, no, I can't go to movies with you. I can't uh, hang out with you socially. I can't drink a beer with you, that kind of thing. Now in that turning down of the client, the client could feel quite hurt by that and it could harm the treatment, right? So even though the the client is the one making the the mistake, it's, it's my responsibility as a therapist to account for those possible mistakes that clients will make. Now, the sort of client that would engage in that kind of distortion is pretty rare and also quite specific, which I won't get into. And something that I generally don't treat. Now, 
can some clients have that kind of transference with me? Uh, yes. And I, I'll absolutely work with them on that. I've had clients fall in love with me. So I, it's not like I don't treat clients who have issues such as that. But I've never had a client, and I can't imagine having a client, honestly, that would listen to the podcast and somehow massively distort that as being uh, much more intimate in a harmful way, if that makes sense. The fourth question here is, does the secondary role increase vulnerability to harm? And this is really the most broad category and really applies to all four of these criteria. Does the secondary relationship increase the vulnerability to harm? And the, you know, there's a lot of nuances to this and we'll get into more later, but you know, harm is extremely unlikely, uh, given what I do in public media. Because again, I follow certain policies. I have things in my informed consent, which I'll get into later. I am very mindful of making sure people don't feel obligated. And if they do become a patron, I don't actually allow them to pay for it. You know, there's certain things that I can do to reduce the possibility of harm to trainees and supervisees. Okay, so to close out my discussion on multiple relationships, I, in the paper, just rattled off a bunch of policies that I follow. If a client asks me to read their question on the podcast, I would politely inform them of my policy given to them during informed consent that I do, that I do not read clients' questions on the podcast to avoid uh, unnecessary multiple relationship and the possibility of breaching their confidentiality. If a supervisee publishes research and I ask that supervisee if they want to present their findings on my podcast, I will be mindful of the power differential and emphasize that there will be no consequences to them refusing me. If a client or a trainee wants access to the premium content of the podcast, uh, I will grant them access free of charge. Uh, let's see, moving down here. If a client or a trainee expresses interest in attending a live podcast event, I will encourage them to not attend for fear of harm to them. If they plan to attend the live event anyway, I will discuss the expectations and risks with them beforehand. If a podcast listener asks to hire me as their supervisor or therapist, I will encourage them to seek services from a different professional. And this policy is easy to follow since my practice has been full for at least a year, maybe two or three years, not sure. With uh, So those are the different policies that I follow. And as you can see, uh, the multiple relationships that are created by me being in public media can be fairly easily accounted for. So just because we have a multiple relationship doesn't make it an ethical violation. Okay, so let's get into self-disclosure. This is a major consideration for me when it comes to public media. Some therapists who do podcasts and who speak in the media don't have to worry about it as much as I do because they, you know, like there are other psychology podcasts where the host who is a clinician will interview experts and very briefly self-disclose about things. For this podcast, I decided long ago that I wanted to make this more personal than those other podcasts. I think those other podcasts have absolutely something to offer. But as time went on, I thought 
in order for me to really make this material impactful, we need to add the human element. And I learned that long ago as an educator. As an instructor, I learned, particularly in the sort of classes that I teach, I have to be a part of it. I can't be a distant lecturer. And if I stay a distant lecturer, none of it will resonate and no one will identify with it. And basically no one will learn anything. And so I decided to do that. And now I have absolute boundaries around that. And I don't disclose everything. Um, some of you who have, if you've heard the episodes with Bob Gettle, for example, he self-discloses as a uh, therapist slash podcaster much, much more than I do. And he has drawn that boundary uh, in a different way for him, and that's fine. And that, that's one of the points to this is that self-disclosure is a very uh, – um, you know, varied – area. (laughs) In the same way that you have some therapists who dress up very formally when they go to work, and you have some therapists that dress in shorts and a t-shirt. In the same way, self-disclosure is the same. You have some therapists who never self-disclose, or they reduce their self-disclosure to an absolute minimum. And you have other therapists who have no problem talking about anything. So, it's a very uh, broad topic, and there's a lot of different practices, and there's no one right, what right way. And I find that with some people who don't really understand this topic, they will think, and I've actually heard educators say this before, supervisors as well, that self-disclosure in its entirety is an ethical violation, which is absurd. So let's get into what is self-disclosure. Well, at the very basic level, we are, as clinicians, self-disclosing all the time. The way we dress gives something away about what we are and who we are. At the very least, it gives away the sort of clothes we like to wear. The way our office looks gives away certain things about us. The couch we bought, the art on our wall, the books on our shelf. Um, if a therapist gets pregnant, you can't hide that very easily. And so that's going to be a form of unavoidable self-disclosure. Or if you run into a client at the movies, you are self-disclosing that you go to that movie. (laughs) And those kinds of self-disclosures are inevitable and unavoidable, and they're just going to happen. And so you can never be totally non-self-disclosing. The other thing is that with today's internet world, it's almost impossible not to self-disclose at least something. Most people have a Facebook page, for example, at least a private one, and your profile picture will be sometimes revealed. Now, some people will change their names on Facebook to avoid being found, but there's even if you do that, there's just even the sort of name you chose to, you know, uh, that reveals something about yourself. So, so there's certain things that on the internet you're going to, you're going to reveal as that's, that's, you just have to, we, so we have to be a little, uh, careful about what, when we say like, you can't self-disclose anything because you're self-disclosing things often. Now, 
usually when we're talking about the topic of self-disclosure, we're talking not about the way our office looks, but we're talking about more significant kinds of self-disclosures, more purposeful, intentional things. You say, like, um, if when I, for example, on the podcast, talk about the fact that I have suffered from anxiety and specifically panic disorder in the past, that's a massive self-disclosure. And if any of my clients or, or trainees are listening to the podcast, then they're going to know something very intimate about me. And I, not only do I talk about the, that, that fact, but I talk about the history of it. I talk about how it progressed. I talk about how it affected me. I talk, I talk about what it was like to go through a panic attack. I talk about how I recovered, so to speak, and my feelings about it. So it's really quite in-depth. Now, I would never do that in a session with a client, but, but I might talk about it with a client. And I decided a long time ago what things I would disclose to my clients and what things I would not. And the exact same things are what I, what I, I have the same boundary with my podcast as I do with my clients because with my podcast, any client can listen to it. So therefore, anything I say on the podcast, I have already vetted as something I'm okay with a client knowing. Now, the client is very unlikely to hear most of those things because they're not relevant to our conversation. You know, a client comes into my office, they sit down, they start talking about their marriage. Well, it's not likely that my, you know, top five movies are likely to pop up in conversation. Whereas if you listen to the podcast and you're a client, you're going to learn that kind of information. But at the same time, I don't have a problem with them learning that kind of stuff. So the research has found that 90% of therapists report they disclose something personal to their clients. 90%, 90% of therapists actually engage in self-disclosure with their clients. And it, oh, my cat wants out. I'm going to let her out. Okay, I'm back. Yeah, so research has found that 90% of therapists will self-disclose in, se- in session. So when anyone who says that self-disclosure is, an, is unethical is saying that 90% of therapists are unethical. And an average of 4% of all therapist interventions involves some form of self-disclosure. So this, you know, bears sort of drilling down in on a little bit. So Hill and Knox in 2002 looked at therapists and how, how they act in session with their clients. And they, you know, coded every single thing a therapist does from um, empathizing to self-disclosing. And they found that an average of 4% of everything a therapist does in session involves self-disclosure. So that tells you something, that uh, therapists are doing it a lot. And also, research by Hill and Knox and Henretti and Levitt in 2010 have showed that therapist self-disclosure has positive effects on many good things about being a therapist and a supervisor, such as an improved alliance within the relationship. You can also increase the self-disclosure of your clients and supervisees, which is important, right? If, if you're, uh, I, some, of, some of you email me as clients and you'll say, you're not my clients, but you're someone else's client. 
and you'll say, I'm really struggling with telling my therapist what's really on my mind because I have a lot of shame and I, you know, I want to tell my therapist this or that, but I, I just can't get myself to say it. Well, according to research, one of the ways that a therapist can help is if the therapist self-discloses, which makes total sense, right? If I tell my client that I have felt ashamed of something to the point where I, I might even tell a client, um, like, let, let's say I have a client who I think is holding back. And maybe the client even says to me that they want to tell me things, but they're, they have a really hard time telling me things that they're really afraid of. Even though they know that they can trust me, they just are really scared to tell me. Well, I might say something like, well, I've, I'm in therapy and I've been in therapy for a long time. And I can tell you that I can absolutely relate to that. Um, there are things that I think about telling my therapist as I'm driving to therapy. And then I get there and I get cold feet and I can't tell them. And they're not even particularly shameful things. They're just things that I don't like talking about. And for me to tell a client that, they might be able to tell me those things now because they're like, oh, okay, I'm normal and my client gets me. And although most clients understand that they are quote unquote normal, we have to experience norm normalization experientially with people that we're with. You know, it's one thing to tell a client, look, it's totally normal to be afraid to, to tell your therapist things. Okay, that's great. That's one way to help normalization. A much more impactful way and more effective way of normalizing something is for the therapist themselves to say something that is uh, from the heart that is that they can identify with. That say, they say, oh, yeah, I've been through that, too. And I know how that feels and uh, makes total sense to me. That is a massive help to clients. So uh, so that's another thing that research has found is that if you want your clients and your supervisees to tell you things and not be afraid to tell you things, you have to self-disclose. And it also has been found to reduce dropout for clients. So clients, meaning when clients will sometimes drop out of therapy too early and one of the ways you can reduce that is if you self-disclose. And all this has to do with making the relationship more, you know, closer and more intimate and more warm and more empathetic. So self-disclosure doesn't – you don't have to use self-disclosure to get there, but it is a very effective way to get there. Another point here, and I'll just read this paragraph. From a feminist and multicultural viewpoint – not self-disclosing can contribute to our male-centered patriarchal society. Johnson, in 2014, asserted that patriarchal societies prefer masculine traits, such as being tough, being logical, being autonomous, whereas feminine qualities, such as vulnerability and emotional expressiveness, are devalued in our patriarchal society. When therapists self-disclose, they model positive associations with human vulnerability, and they eschew the restrictive and limiting patriarchal value of stoicism. Mahalik, Van Omer, and Simi, as cited in Helen Knox 2002, 
point out that feminists support therapist self-disclosure in that it equalizes the power in their relationship, which is not only just, but it can also help the client feel less shame and more self-worth. So that's my paragraph on that. So self-disclosure has not only been found by research to be helpful in a lot of ways to clients and supervisees, but it's also a socially just thing to do. You know, now, if you you can you can be socially just and not self-disclose for sure. But let's take it to an extreme. You have a white male 55-year-old Protestant heterosexual cisgender person who's a therapist. And in comes a a woman of color who is uh, bisexual. And she is talking about how she's sad. She's talking about how she's anxious. She's talking about how she doesn't know how to go on in life anymore. And this white, male, hetero, privileged, 55-year-old therapist sits there and listens and empathizes, but he just sits there and listens from afar. Well, it's not inherently oppressive and marginalizing, but it sure can lead to that, right? And I, I think that's pretty clear if you understand how society works. Now, imagine that 55-year-old hetero, cis, male, you know, therapist says something like, yeah, I, I've been depressed at times too, and it feels awful. And when you describe the state you've been in for the past several months, it reminds me of, of a time I went through. And I won't go into the details, you know, because this is about you. It's not about me. But I, I can tell you that, um, man, you know, I, I get it. And I feel so sorry that, you went, that you're going through that right now. And I also know that when I was going through that time, whenever I would talk about it, even with therapists, they always had these like easy answers like, well, get out there and exercise or, you know, um, just have positive thoughts. And I remember thinking, you all are idiots. So fuck off. You don't know what it's like. I, I can't change my mood just by having positive thoughts. It's not going to work. And so I felt even more isolated because I just felt like whenever I talked about it, everyone had this, you know, really stupid, trite advice. So imagine as a therapist, you know, 55 total privileged male therapist says this to this marginalized client, how it would level the playing field and give the client power and help the client feel not only heard and understood and you know, connected to the therapist, but also like, oh, okay, you're not this perfect, privileged white male on high, and I'm not this broken person of color down here. We both suffer. And although marginalization is real, you suffer and I suffer, and we both suffer, and we're both, everyone's equal when it comes to depression. Let's just put it that way. So it's a feminist and just act to self-disclose in in a certain way. Now, I could talk for hours and hours and hours about 
how to self-disclose effectively because there's certain guidelines, but it's so much more nuanced than that. And uh, so I'm not going to say like to therapists out there, just self-disclose and everything will work out for you. No. What I'm saying is use your wisdom and your clinical judgment and your training and your consultation with other people to figure out a way to self-disclose in an effective way. And through that process, you'll you figure out how to do it in an effective way. You know, I train therapists and I would never tell them, you know, just self-disclose, everything will work out. You know, I would say, let's go over every self-disclosure that you are considering doing before you do it. And let's talk about what it's going to look like and what your prediction is and why you want to do it and all those kinds of things. But in general, self-disclosure can, can go, can, is a good thing. Now, on the other hand, so I've talked about all the good things of self-disclosure. On the other hand, there's definitely a dark side to self-disclosure in that some disclosures can harm clients. Common examples that I've heard are therapists in session talking at length about their personal lives in a way that is more at service of the therapist's needs to vent or to get validation than it is to the client's needs. So there are self-disclosures that can absolutely be harmful. So one, one style of harm is when the therapist just goes on and on about themselves. Another type of self-disclosure is if the – so a very common one actually that I get emails about from you people out there. You people is when you're, you have some kind of erotic or romantic attraction to your therapist and you express that to your therapist and your therapist reciprocates and says, I also feel that energy with you. I also feel – romantically attracted to you or sexually attracted to you. And although that kind of self-disclosure can be helpful in a very deep way, it can absolutely harm the treatment and the client. Because now the client's walking around saying, wait, so my therapist gets sexually turned on by me? Does that mean my therapist masturbates about me. I thought my therapist was married. Does that mean my therapist is going to cheat? Has my therapist cheated? For some people, these can be extremely damaging thought worms that can you know, wriggle their way through the mind of a client. <laughs> That's an interesting metaphor. Now, so some self-disclosures can absolutely be harmful. I'm not going to go into all the details, but those are the, that's the gist of it. Now, with my public media activity, I, one of the major things I'm always thinking about is self-disclosure. And I always assume that every client I've ever had and ever will have and every trainee I've ever worked with or ever will work with will hear every single thing that I've ever said in the podcast or otherwise, you know, in public media. Now, that's extremely unlikely, but there's a chance and therefore – I have to just assume that everything I do in public media will be heard by a client or by a supervisee. And this is the first, whenever I'm training people, this is the first thing I say. And it's a little shocking to people. They're like, well, you know, surely my clients aren't going to listen to this. I mean, I, I, I don't have a lot of listeners. And I'll say, yeah, it's, it's unlikely that anyone of your clients will actually pay attention to it. But what if they did? 
and therefore you just have to assume that they all listen to everything. So let's get specific. What kinds of things won't I talk about? Well, there are really two categories of things I can think of off the top of my head. One is is extremely personal information. I mean, I'm not even going to uh, point out what those things could be because I it'll reveal something about where my brain goes <laughs> when I think about that. But there are certain personal things that most people would never reveal. And if I said those, you know, let's say certain sexual things, <laughs> um, you know, I would never reveal and, and I would never reveal to my clients unless it was extremely relevant, which I, even then I wouldn't reveal it. It's, uh, there's some fairly obvious things that I just won't self-disclose. Now, part of it is just, I don't feel comfortable telling the world, the seven and a half billion people on the planet about such a thing. But also I, I think it would actually potentially lead to harm for clients or trainees if they heard that. It's just too much information. So those are those are things I don't self-disclose in public media for those reasons. Now, if I wasn't a therapist and I wasn't a supervisor, I, I've often thought about this because, you know, Dr. Phil, for example, when he had his TV show, started his TV show years and years ago, he gave up his clinical practice and let his license lapse. And I think partly at least because he couldn't get sued for self-disclosing or doing things on his show because he no longer was a clinician. And uh, I've thought about just daydreaming about like, well, what if my career did that? You know, what if I just slowly closed my practice and slowly backed away from supervision and education and, and I all I did was podcasting? Well, what would that mean for my flexibility and self-disclosure? Well, I, I, I've thought about it, and I probably still wouldn't self-disclose much more. Maybe I'd just self-disclose a little bit more about my personal life, but I don't know. Maybe not. So, so there's the TMI part of things, which I hate the phrase TMI, but I'm going to use it in this situation. The other side of things are things like extreme political beliefs that I might have. So in general, I'm fairly in the middle anyway, and I'm fairly fair to different groups of people. But in my casual life, when me and the pod wife are talking or me and Alberto are talking after having a couple of beers or something, I will have very opinionated things to say about the world. And they're not refined. They're probably not very educated and they're probably not fair, but we're, that's, that's the human right to be unrefined and unfair. That's, we have that right and tendency. And so I don't say things like that on the podcast. And if I ever do, then I exclude them. I also exclude them if other people say them. So there, there have been times when other people, such as Umberto, will say something that I believe to be inflammatory and harmful. And I'll just delete it. I'll edit it out. And I, I can edit it out pretty easily without anyone noticing. There's like all these different audio techniques you can use. And I do that because I don't want clients and trainees 
to hear me or people associated with me saying such things because it could really hurt their feelings. Now, behind closed doors, I'm free to say what I want. Now, again, in general, behind closed doors, I have very similar beliefs. But, you know, I'll dip into some odd belief, this or that. And like I said, in my free time, I'm free to do that. But on the podcast, I really limit that quite a bit. Or the tone I will use, for example. I will use a different tone. Because it's not hard to imagine a situation where if, for example, you know, let's just say Umberto says something extremely mean to a certain group of people in the United States. And I don't really respond against that statement or I even go along with it. And let's say I have a client or a trainee who is a part of that group. I guess to be specific, let's say Umberto says something really mean about Republicans and I just let it go or I even agree. And I just publish that. Well, I have Republican clients and trainees. You have enough. I mean, even though Seattle is, I don't know, something like only 10% Republican or 15% Republican, um, maybe a little bit more, but anyway, not very many Republicans live in this area, but you know, one out of 10, one out of one out of five. And therefore I'm going to have clients and trainees who are Republican. And if they heard me say that, or they heard someone else say that that was associated with me, it could really hurt their feelings. And they could come to our next meeting feeling really quite hurt and cut off from me and not want to open up to me and be angry at me and, and resent me. And why? <laughs> because, uh, you know, there's no point in that. As, as I was saying earlier, it's all about risk versus benefit. So let's say I talk about attachment theory on the podcast and I talk about it, how I love the theory and I think it's really great. And let's say one of my supervisees hates the theory and they think everyone who believes in attachment theory is an idiot. Well, the, and they come to me in our next supervision meeting and they're just like, I can't believe you liked attachment theory because I think it's the dumbest theory of all time. And our relationship is ruptured on some level because I talked to, I self-disclosed about how much I loved attachment theory. Well, the benefit of me teaching everyone about one of the most useful theories that's ever been developed is far greater than the very remote risk of me harming a relationship with a client or supervisee by talking about how much I like attachment theory. So although the risk is there, the benefit far outweighs the risk. Now let's go back to what I was talking about before. I'm talking about uh, Republicans and I say some offhand remark where I'm, you know, being den denigrating to them. And Okay, so the risk is definitely there that I could harm a relationship with somebody and therefore, you know, commit some sort of ethical concern. And at what benefit does the world or my clients or my podcast get out of me being denigrating towards Republicans? That I can't, actually, you could argue I'm harming society in a lot of ways. The only 
remote benefit is that for some uh, extreme Democrats, they'll get a little bit of a chuckle out of it or some little validation out of it. But I don't even want to validate those kinds of thoughts. So, so right there we see, you know, a, a, a fairly minor risk, but no benefit to it. So just because the risk is, is relatively low, there's no benefit to it. So you, I can't justify it. I can't justify even taking a small risk there. Okay, and then the end of this this section in my paper about self-disclosure, I got to this certain part that I'm really proud of, and it was kind of a revelation for me. Um, so I started thinking as I was writing this section, I started thinking, well, you know, there are other famous therapists who self-disclose, right? And I started thinking about it, and then all these heroes of mine started popping up, and I was like, wait, a lot of my heroes in the field of psychotherapy have long traditions of self-disclosing, not only in a minor way, but in major ways. But we don't consider it the same because these are famous people who publish books and they're old and they're white and they're, you know, there's just the, it, it doesn't feel the same as me podcasting about my favorite movies, for example. But in essence, it's exactly the same thing. And let me go over it. So Irvin Yalom, as you know, is one of my heroes. I had him on the podcast not too long ago. And anyone who, so Irvin Yalom is a therapist and he has been writing and teaching and supervising and practicing for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years or something. And one of his books called Love's Executioner, Bob talks about it sometimes, published 1989, is often assigned reading in training programs. So you have training programs that assign this book called Love's Executioner to their trainees. So this, and it, this book is available to all of Irvin Yalom's clients. In this book, Irvin Yalom reveals some of the most difficult things that I've heard a therapist self-disclose. Sexual attraction to his clients, hating his clients, those kinds of things. Not only that, but Irvin Yalom has published and uh, uh, a memoir, essentially, about his life. He regularly talks about his marriage. He really regularly talks about his childhood with his parents. He, he, there's a documentary about him, and he's continuing to practice very effectively and continuing to educate and supervise very effectively. In fact, one could argue that one of Irvin Yalom's major strengths as a client, as a therapist and a trainer is that he self-discloses in very wise ways. So anyone who says that us clinicians cannot self-disclose in the public media, all they'd have to do is realize that there are those out there that are doing it wonderfully well and are highly revered in our in our culture. And without Irvin Yalom doing that, where would we be as a field without people like Irvin Yalom doing it? Uh, another major figure, another hero of mine, Donald Winnicott, also self-disclosed in his publications. For example, in his 1949 paper, all the way back in the 40s, he wrote a paper, a very famous paper called Hate in the Countertransference. Basically, in this paper, he wrote about how he hated one of his clients, just despised this, this like 
younger, uh, you know, tween boy who was very defiant. And this paper totally revolutionized or was part of the major revolution in our field of psychotherapy in that before Donald Winnicott, you be, you know, the general belief was the Freudian uh, standard, which was that it's normal to have feelings, but you need to kind of get rid of them essentially as a therapist. And if you ever do have countertransference, you need to go back to therapy, go back to analysis and essentially get rid of them. Freud wouldn't have worded it that way, but that's essentially the gist of what people did. After Donald Winnicott, there and, and a few others in the 40s and 50s, there was this acknowledgement that, hey, we as therapists are going to have feelings towards our clients, and that's human, and that's normal. And to pathologize those feelings is to uh, deny what's really happening and to really pathologize human uh, normalcy. So Donald Winnicott revolutionized our field and pushed us forward in a major way in terms of our understanding of countertransference. And the only way he could have done that was by self-disclosing how much he hated one of his clients. And he did this in other ways as well. Uh, another major figure, another hero of mine, Virginia Satir, she self-disclosed about her inner world. In her seminal work, Conjoint Family Therapy, published in 1964, she wrote about her micro-emotional reactions during a particular uh, session and, and a number of sessions. So she talks about how each moment to moment she's having these little reactions and big reactions. And this became a hallmark of her style and also a hallmark in her training of other therapists. It was a very big deal for Virginia to help her trainees understand that it was normal to have feelings and to, to pay attention to them and to never shame them and to have self-esteem about them. So Virginia Satir, another hero of mine who self-disclosed as a clinician, you know, as a therapist, as a trainer. The last one I'll talk about is Murray Bowen, another pioneer in family therapy. He presented his paper, called Toward a Differentiation of Self in One's Family, One's Own Family, in 1972 at a national meeting in uh, 1967. Um, in this paper, he wrote a uh, very long paper that self-disclosed a lot, uh, also about his family of origin, his parents and his siblings. Basically, what Murray Bowen did was he was developing his theory on how individuals work and how families work. And it's a really great, great theory. Uh, I know a lot of you enjoy Bowenian theory. And what he, in order to figure out how humans work worked, what Murray Bowen did is he set out to experiment on himself and his own parents and siblings <laughs> over the span of 12 years. So he would go back home for Thanksgiving and he would observe and experiment. He'd come back home and he'd write and develop a theory. He'd go back and he, and he tried to kind of mess with his families in, in certain ways. You could say that that wasn't so great, but he would argue that he improved his family and himself through this process. But he detailed all of this process, which involved a lot of self-disclosure in this paper in th that he presented in 1967. And it is still assigned reading in family therapy courses. 
It's one of the most famous papers in family therapy. So again, for us to learn, particularly maybe in our field, about how to be who we are, we have to self-disclose and we have to publish these things. And if we publish them, they're going to be available to our clients. There's no way you can publish something that's only available to other clinicians. So if we're going to help clinicians learn how to be clinicians, we have to self-disclose. And if we're going to self-disclose, then our clients are going to see that too. And we have to just accept that. And we have to look at the benefit versus the harm, right? So when I came to this part of the paper, and when I and this is actually kind of a late revision of it, I was like, oh my God. Because all this time I've been, I, I've felt kind of like this weirdo in my field in that I, I'm one of the only, at least that I know of, podcasts where I'm a clinician and I talk about technical things, but I also reveal a fair amount about myself, at least my attitudes, you know, about things I'll reveal. I'll get heated. I'll get in fights with Umberto. You know, these are, these are quite personal things that I don't know if other clinicians are doing on their podcasts. And so I've always felt kind of weird. And I knew because I would review the literature and consult that I wasn't doing anything unethical, but I always just felt kind of strange, like, man, you know, is there something different about me? But when I start looking at the past, you know, we didn't have podcasts in the past. Well, what we had was we had, you know, publications and books. So if uh, Virginia Satir and Donald Winnicott and Irvin Yalom and Murray Bowen were alive today, I'm guessing they would at least contemplate having a podcast, particularly Donald Winnicott, because Winnicott actually had a radio show in which he uh, tried to advise parents in UK how to how to be good parents. And uh, so I'm part of that tradition. And that tradition has never been considered unethical. I've never heard anyone accusing Satir or Bowen or Winnicott or Irvin Yalom of being unethical by publishing these sorts of things. And so it can be done to the benefit of clients. It can be done to the benefit of trainees. And those benefits can... uh, are often, you know, well, those benefits in light of the risk, uh, when we look at the benefits and the risk, we can say it's worth it. And so uh, that's what I'll say about self-disclosure. All right, let's go on to our next topic here. And that is, is unprofessionalism or the risk of harmful unprofessionalism. So what are we talking about when we talk about professionalism? Well, it's not very easily defined. And it's not something that's very much discussed in the ethical codes. Um, There's often a general uh, lip service or not lip service, but a general um, discussion around professionalism. But it's, it's one of the least defined things that I have to consider when I'm doing the podcast. Um, So authors have put forth different, um, definitions, and I'll provide uh, two kind of to provide the range. Um, some, some authors will define professionalism as uh, polite behavior, just like be polite when you're in public. Uh, and other people will define it as an aspiration to altruism, accountability, duty, integrity, and respect for others. 
For the purposes of my paper, when it came to the definition of professionalism, I define professionalism as representing the profession well and providing a good example to follow. So this is an extremely squishy area. How do you represent the profession well? And how do you and what what defines a good example to follow? Because for one person it would mean one thing and for another person it would mean something entirely different. For example, when I swear on the podcast, I have received some angry letters from people saying, not letters, people don't send me letters, they send me email or messages, they don't like it when I swear, and some people even accuse me of being unprofessional. And I generally swear a lot in my personal life. I consider swear words to be relevant. Um, I don't consider them to be particularly out of reach. I mean, there's some swear words I won't use because of the meaning of them, but when I'm upset or when I want to emphasize something, you know, I'll drop an F-bomb. And I've looked into um, the listeners and their opinions, surveyed them. And what I find is that although there are a few people who would just wish that I would at the very least cut back on swearing, most people are either neutral, they don't really care because swearing doesn't really bother them, or they really enjoy it when I swear because it is... You know, I grew up in a time in the 70s and 80s, I was taught that swearing was something entirely superfluous to human communication. It was only done because you were trying to be rebellious or naughty or something, and it didn't really have any purpose. As time has gone on, I've realized that swear words are very effective. Now, you can swear too much to the point where the words lose their meaning or you know, morph into just regular practice. But swear words have meaning. You know, if I was to be upset about the fact that the governments around the world in general are not doing enough to save our planet, I might say something like these fucking government officials don't fucking recognize the fact that our our planet is going down the fucking tubes. You know, (laughs) I might say something like that because I'm upset and I feel like to just say the words, the governments around the world are not doing enough to save our planet. I feel like I can say really what's in my heart and what I think really what deserves to be said by dropping in a few F-bombs in there. And so, so anyway, I've looked into, you know, I've, I've surveyed the listeners and most people are either fine or they really like it. A few people don't like it. I'm trying to cut back, honestly, because it's not like people are dying for me to swear all the time. And I, and on average, I swear a lot more than the average person. And so I, I'm trying to cut back, having just dropped three F-bombs in a row. But so for some people, it's completely unprofessional for me to say the F-word. And for other people, it's... It's totally not unprofessional, or some people might even consider it to be professional to actually use a swear word in certain contexts, like when you're upset or when you're talking with people who like to use swear words. So, you know, how do we manage that? Because we we have an ethical uh, obligation to be quote unquote professional. And what does that mean? 
so it's really squishy. And I've never heard of anyone getting sued for being unprofessional or losing their license for being unprofessional, at least unless it was something quite obvious, like, I don't know, um, going number two as a protest in front of the White House <laughs> or something. Um, that uh, I could see that maybe being called out as unprofessional and therefore an ethical violation. Uh, but I have, I haven't heard anything like that. So having established that there is an ethical obligation to be professional and that we don't really have a clear definition, I will say that I absolutely try to remain professional when I'm on public media, such as the podcast. There are certainly things, let me give some examples, practical things. There was a time when we, as a podcast, started dipping into actually drinking alcohol while we were recording the podcast. Because some of the podcasts that I like to listen to, when they're doing some more casual episodes, they might have a couple of drinks here and there or when they're on stage or this sort of thing. And as time went on, I thought to myself, eh, I don't like that. I think it, it, it is unprofessional. I think to be intoxicated particularly would be unprofessional. I think drinking alcohol is fine. There's nothing wrong with, with drinking alcohol. I'm 48 years old. I'm well past the age of, of legal uh, age to drink. <laughs> so I'm not breaking any laws. But um, I feel as though it doesn't provide a good example. And I learned in the few times that I did it five years ago that when I even just have half a beer, I can't podcast well anymore. My brain really needs to be in tip-top shape in order to podcast. So, so that's one thing that I've decided not to do. Not to do. Um, posting particular things on social media, I guess this is probably more important, is when I am, for example, at you know, singing karaoke with Umberto or some other um, podcast person. And we're thinking, hey, let's take a video or let's take a picture and let's post it on the Facebook page and on Instagram and that kind of thing. You know, a little behind the scenes look. And there are times when I will look at a picture and I'll be like, nope, that's unprofessional. Or just before posting, I'll be like, eh, that this is unprofessional. I, I, I think it's fine to sing karaoke. I think it's fine to be doing what I'm doing. I'm not doing anything wrong, but I just feel like it is a little unprofessional. And if someone else wants to do that, I think that's fine. So this is one of those areas where, again, unless you did something really beyond the pale, I think it would be hard to justify a complaint or a claim of eth ethical violation and, and harm. Having said that, I definitely have a gauge in my mind about what is professional and, and what is not in terms of my criteria, and I tend to follow that in my practice. Another example that I came up with when I was writing the paper is I like crass jokes. I like comedians who do crass jokes. I like disgusting jokes. I don't like all disgusting jokes, but I like some disgusting jokes. And in my private life, I might participate in laughing about a particular crass joke. I might even make a gross joke here, you know, here or there. But 
I wouldn't do that on the podcast because I consider it to be unprofessional. That's, that's one of the things that I draw the line on. I don't necessarily think I'm going to make any, I'm going to harm anybody, but I do have a duty to provide a good example for my field when I'm in public. And I am mindful of that. Again, some people would look at this podcast and, and look at, you know, 10% of the things that I do on it and say that I'm not providing a good example for the profession. And they, they would be right given their criteria. So with this one, it's one of the least concrete areas of our ethical obligations. The next ethical area to consider is what we call inaccurate publications. So according to all the ethical codes in all the different professions, whether you're a therapist, a counselor, a psychologist, a social worker, psychiatrist, um, or psychiatric nurse, all the ethical codes state that you have to, you can't say things that are factually inaccurate in public media and to your clients for that matter. So uh, things like, um, dropping certain research claims that you haven't really vetted that are, you're like, you're just taking a guess or you just make a fantastical claim like aromatherapy cures a depression. These kinds of things are extremely unethical because as an expert, you have to be very careful about the things you say because people really take your statements to heart. And I've actually seen things like this where a therapist will, as a side business, have an aromatherapy business. And they, on Facebook, on their professional pages, they'll, they'll post all these different things, these claims about how aromatherapy saved someone's life or something or research shows or whatever. And I always think, man, you got to be really careful with stuff like that. Because if you're an accountant or a waitress or a CEO of, of Microsoft – you don't have to worry about those kinds of things because no one thinks of you as a clinician. You're just another layperson who is posting something that you like. But as a clinician, if we're going to make claims, we got to make sure it's backed up by sound science. And this is particularly important for me as, as someone in the public media because I say a lot of different things. So, and I, and I weigh in on things that I actually don't have any expertise in. And since I'm basically always considered a professional when I'm in the public media, I have to think about all that kind of stuff. And so when I say something in an area that I don't know anything about, I always say that up front. And I also think about it as I'm talking. So for example, if I was to talk about benzodiazepines, a psychotropic that helps with anxiety, I always say, I am not a medical professional. Uh, Everything I'm about to say is based on some education in psychopharmacology, but also based on just my own experience using benzodiazepines and in my own experience observing clients use benzodiazepines as prescribed by their medical professional. So I always make sure I say that caveat because I, I, I want to delineate between things that I have expert knowledge of and things that I don't. And I need to do that. The other thing is, is that if, if I ever do any, say anything, whether it's in my area or not, I need to make sure that it's factual. And there are times when I'll say something and then later I'll be listening back to edit and I'll be like, oop, that's, 
that that's not true. I actually look up the information because I have, you know, because the thing about doing a podcast is you're in a constant state of almost tripping over yourself because you're, you have to say stuff all the time. And sometimes you uh, release something from your mouth that doesn't make any sense. And so um, you have to go, just go back and get rid of it. Um, and another thing that I do that anyone who listens to the podcast knows is if I'm diagnosing from afar, I always say, look, I'm diagnosing like Ted Bundy, for example, I'm diagnosing him from afar. I really have no idea if any of this is accurate. All my data is from the internet. I never met him. I can't diagnose him officially. So everything I'm about to say, you have to say with a massive grain of salt. And I'm guessing if I actually met him in person and assessed him, I would see something a little bit different than this, if not a lot different. So these kinds of things you have to say. Um, now, uh, one of the things I thought about as I was writing this this piece and I've thought about over the years was that, um, w- you know, if we if we as clinicians uh, stray from this ethical uh, code, then everything falls apart. You know, it we have to we have to have integrity. One will harm people if we spread lies and things that aren't scientifically sound. But also, everyone will lose respect for us, and no one will th- will uh, respect anything we have to say. Just think about politicians. When was the last time a politician said something and you were just like, yep, 100%, I believe every word that politician said. I mean, even politicians I vote for and like, when they say, when they drop a fact, I don't believe it. I think, well, I, I wonder what the experts have to say about that. That's a problem, right? Why do we look at politicians that way? Why? Because politicians do not follow an ethical code and they have no consequences to lying. Therapists, we can lose our license if we say things that are not factually accurate. Politicians will get elected when they say things that aren't factually accurate. And so all you got to do is, you know, if a therapist says something, people generally uh, believe it and accept it. If a politician says something, no one respects it. No one believes it in general, Uh, particularly a politician from the other side of the aisle. Well, the only reason why we have that power is because we've policed ourselves mostly. So we, we need to do that. And, you know, one doesn't have to look far to see examples of people who are abusing this within the medical or psychotherapy fields. Um, for example, Dr. Oz on his TV show, a report in 2014 revealed that, um, even though 60% of the advice given on his show lacked scientific basis, he has amassed a a worth of $30 million. So I've often thought about this of like, you know, you look at a person like Dr. Oz and it's like 60% of the the things he says and the advice he gives on that show does not have a scientific basis, meaning that he's lying. And Again, if he were Oprah, then he could do that. But Dr. Oz is a physician, or at the very least he used to be, and should know better. But man, is he rich. And why is he rich? Well, I'm guessing at least half of the reason why he's rich and popular is because he, in fact, does say things that aren't scientifically accurate. There's just something about pseudoscience that sells. And so 
I could do that, right? As a podcaster, I could even, as I said earlier, close my license, close my supervision, close my practice, and I could start making fantastical claims and potentially make a lot more money, like $30 million. But one, I'm not put on this planet to earn money. I'm put on this planet to help people, I believe. Uh, Two, I have enough money, I think, (laughs) so I don't need more. Uh, I mean, you know, I have a shirt on my back and a computer and a family and uh, safety and I have a phone. Like, I don't know. I just can't imagine what else I would need. Um, That's why it's hard when people are like, what do you want for your birthday or Christmas? I'm like, "Um, man, I think I pretty, I don't know. I I think I have everything I want. There's not really anything. (laughs) I mean, it's part of the privilege of being someone who earns a pretty good living as a I don't know why I'm going down this road. Anyway, the point is, is that I could, I could earn a lot more money. I could be a lot more famous. I could have a lot more power if I started to lie, I'm, I'm guessing, or, or even do unprofessional things like, um, say, inflammatory things or get into flame wars with other pod, psychology podcasters or something. Um, but they don't align with my mission in my life. And I also want to respect ethical codes. It, it's, it's easy to follow this ethical code because it really follows my own ethical code. But anyway, um, that's what I'll say about inaccurate publication. Okay. So the next thing I want to go in. So, so I reviewed all the things we talked about. Let me review. I talked about making sure we uh, publish accurate things so when I'm talking on the podcast, I'm, I need to make sure everything's accurate. When I am behaving in public media, I need to make sure I'm professional. I need to make sure that I don't self-disclose in a harmful way. I need to make sure that I don't engage in any harmful multiple relationships. I need to be very mindful of that. I need to think about boundary issues in general and confidentiality, making sure that I don't you know, reveal things about my clients and supervisees that would break their confidentiality. So those are all the things. Now, how do we pull this all together into a, you know, one thing that I do? Well, the topic that combines everything is ethical decision-making. And a lot of different authors have um, observed and provided different ways to guide ethical decision-making. So I, uh, pulled together various different resources and develop my own um, things that I need to think about whenever I do anything. Number one is to make sure that the risk of harm is low. So whenever I do anything in public media as a clinician or otherwise is I need to make sure that the risk of harm to my clients and to my supervisees is low. Two is that the benefits need to outweigh the risks significantly. Number th- so there need to be benefits, right? Number three is the necessity of the boundary crossing has been considered, meaning that do I really need to do that? For example, if I'm going to drop an F-bomb, do I really need to drop the F-bomb? Is it absolutely imperative? Not imperative. Is it, is it needed? Do the benefits outweigh the risk? Is the, am I going to harm people? What's the risk of harming someone? Number four, the client or trainee will not likely misinterpret the crossing or consider it unwelcome. So 
and I've talked about this before, right? If I'm going to self-disclose in the podcast or if I'm going to post a picture of my cat on Facebook, um, I will predict that all my clients, past, present, future, and all my trainees, past, present, future, will not likely misinterpret that behavior by me um, in a way that would be harmful to them, and they're not going to consider it unwelcome. For example, let's just go with me posting a picture of a cat. It's not likely that a client, upon seeing that you know, picture of my cat, would misinterpret it as me, I don't know, telling them that they need to have a cat or that uh, dog people are stupid or something. You know, I can't imagine what. But it's very unlikely that someone's going to misinterpret a picture of my cat on Facebook in a harmful way. Number five, the intention of the boundary crossing is to help the client or the trainee and not to meet my own needs. So this one gets into some interesting area that I probably haven't talked about yet. So let's just take the example of me posting a picture of my cat. Well, you know, one probably would have a hard time arguing that my intention of, uh, you know, posting a picture of my cat on Facebook is to help my clients and my trainees. You know, it'd be a hard, hard thing to argue. But let's look a little broader here. Uh, people I have realized <laughs> as an old person that in order to be popular on the internet, you have to provide for some people these kinds of things. For many people, they don't really care, but for some people, they really want these kinds of things. Because I'm not particularly interested in posting pictures of my cat on Facebook, but I like to take pictures of my cat and I, I post them to my personal page. But it's, it never occurred to me to actually post it to the Psychology Seattle Facebook page or the Instagram because I thought, who wants to see that? You know, this is a podcast about psychology. Why do, why do they want to see a picture of my cat? Well, for some people, they really enjoy that kind of thing and it makes them feel more connected to the podcast and therefore uh, they're more likely to tell their people about it. Um, if they're a minor, if they're minorly interested and I don't know, they see a picture of my cat on Facebook, it pushes them into being a moderate interested person on the podcast. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I've ever put this in the words, but anyway, so it benefits the podcast on some, on some level when I reveal those things that self-disclose those things and, you know, take the risk of being unprof- seen as unprofessional or something. And what that does is by making the podcast more popular, in my mind, one could argue against me, I am actually spreading something that is good to our society, to my clients, to trainees, to my own trainees, and to trainee and to other therapists in general to benefit everybody. So that's a grandiose statement, but I believe it to be true. For example, when I do an episode about normalizing erotic countertransference, and I'm talking about how it's normal for therapists to occasionally have erotic feelings towards their clients. And to shame it and to deny it is to give it power and to potentially cause problems where you actually end up crossing boundaries and maybe going down the slippery slope of having sex with your clients. So we just have to say it's normal. And I provide the research, you know, a a large percentage of therapists report that they have in their, you know, 
uh, career been attracted to at least one of their clients. So we need to start there. And then the second thing is, is once we acknowledge that and we don't shame it, we need to get help for it. We need to consult about it and we need to think about it so we don't harm our clients. And we also think about our own personal lives as to why that's happening in the first place. So that's a notion that is underrepresented in trainings and underrepresented as an attitude in our field. And there aren't a lot of places where that is being talked about. Well, in order for all the people that need to hear that message in the way that I think they need to hear it, then someone has to be saying it. And, and that person also has to think about how they're going to make it so that other people even know that they're saying it. So if I was just saying it in my room and I was posting it on YouTube and only five people were listening because that was literally what would happen in the beginning of this podcast, by the way. Um, I mean, I remember, just, oh my God, five people listen to this episode on YouTube. I'm so happy. Um, our numbers are still relatively low, by the way. <laughs> it's only like, you know, one or 2,000 uh, views on YouTube each time. But anyway, um, the thing I'm saying is that I believe that it's important that other clinicians hear this message. And I know I'm not the only person talking about it, for sure. But I am one of the only people in our field who actually not only talks about it, but also tries to make it so disseminated that other clinicians will just stumble upon it. And one of the ways that you do that is by creating a brand or a thing that is popular. And the way you make something popular in part is by posting pictures of my cat on Facebook. <laughs> so, you know, posting a picture of my cat on Facebook, if you look at it in a very micro way, um, doesn't meet the needs of my clients or trainees in very directly, right? But indirectly, it absolutely does because it increases the profile of this thing, which increases the chance that people who need to hear this will hear it. And I get emails all the time from people saying, I was struggling with this or that, and I Googled it, and I came across your thing, and it really helped. And what that tells me is that there's a lot of people suffering out there, whether it's, you know, clinicians or clients, and they're turning to the internet because they don't know where else to go. And I'm guessing that there are there's a mixture of quality of uh, things on the internet regarding the answers to their questions. And so I believe I'm providing an evidence-based um, expert opinion on some of these things that uh, is an important voice in, in that conversation that needs to be on the internet. So posting a picture of my cat, I think, justifies that. Uh, and other things along those lines, like posting a you know, a goofy picture of me and Umberto or something, or even having a live show. All right, so that's number five. Number six is the clinician is not hindered by their own bias. So this is hard to do to because when you're biased, you're biased. You don't know you're biased all the time. So, the, so this is important. Whenever I do anything in public media, like, again, let's just take the picture of my cat. I love my cat, and I want everyone to love my cat. And I like the attention that my cat gets when I post pictures of her on Instagram and Facebook. Well, I'm, so I'm biased about posting that picture of my cat because I like my cat and I like posting things on Facebook. So I have to look at, well, am I over justifying this act because of my bias? 
And that's a very important thing to consider. And you can't just do that in isolation. You have to talk with other people. The, the easiest way you can really figure out if you're biased is just bouncing it off someone else who doesn't have a vested interest in what you're doing. And I've done that. Number seven, the client or trainee's sensitivities are considered. This is important. I've alluded to this earlier as well. So if you work with, for example, let's just say people who have been sexually abused by a family member, that's, that's you know, you, you work with a lot of clients like that. And you make a joke that is insensitive to that group of people. This is not a good example, I'm realizing, because I would never say a joke like that regardless of what was happening. Um, let, me, let me use another example. Uh, let's say you work primarily with clients who are severely uh, borderline personality, meaning that they have experienced severe um, relational trauma and abandonment and harm growing up and are extremely sensitive to abandonment as an adult and see abandonment when there is no abandonment, see rejection when there is no rejection. And with those clients, they're more likely to misinterpret things. It's just how things go. Actually, any personality disorder, I'll say, they're more likely to misinterpret things. That's one of the hallmarks of a personality disorder. Now, they're not misinterpreting things on purpose. They're misinterpreting things because of the traumas that they've been through. In the same way that a war veteran, you know, comes to Seattle, comes home to Seattle and hears a helicopter, their body misinterprets the helicopter as a sign of danger as if they were in battle in Afghanistan. So they're misinterpreting the sound. Their conscious mind is looking at the helicopter going, the helicopter's fine, but their body looks, hears that helicopter and has a reaction that is overwhelming to the self. In the same way that when you're mistreated as a young person and you're an adult, when someone is, say, a little quiet or doesn't respond to your text right away, even though consciously they're saying, well, maybe they're busy, but the body says, no, 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 this means you're being left. This means you're being abandoned. This means terrible things, you know, and, and you're flooded with emotion and you take action based on that, which could be suicidal ideation. It could be aggression towards the person who didn't text you back. And so if you work with clients like this, then the chance of them being sensitive to certain kinds of things in the podcast, uh, I need to consider. Um, and I always do. So because so let's say, for example, I didn't work with people with personality disorders, because I do. I specialize in people with personality disorders. But let's say that I didn't. Let's say I only worked with phobias, for example. That's all I did. Quitting smoking and phobias. Well, I, could, I would be free to say a lot more things because the chance of my clients, my personal clients being harmed by things would be much lower because I, I don't treat people who have those kinds of issues. So because I treat people who are uh, potentially really quite sensitive to things, I have to be a lot more careful about the things that I do. Um, number eight is the power differential has been considered. So this applies to everything that I do. When I'm on public media, uh, you know, any of the people I'm considering, I have a power. Um, I have power over. I have power over my clients. I have power over my supervisees in particular. I have power over my students. 
And so I just have to really consider that power uh, when I'm doing things. And, and I always think about that. Now, the sort of multiple relationship that I'm engaging in doesn't really play into that problem very much because no one has to listen to my podcast, right? And I'm not asking them to. Um, it, this this ethical decision-making um, criteria criterion has more to do with if I were to hire a client to be the babysitter of my kids, for, for example. Um, number nine, the clinician has achieved competency in evaluation and execution of that crossing. So in other words, do I have competency in evaluating and executing my uh, boundary crossings when it comes to the podcast and other public media that I participate in? Have I achieved competency? What does that mean to achieve? Because as, as clinicians, we can't do things in our clinical and professional realm and our professional role that we don't have competency in. So for example, I can't do EMDR, for example, even though I've been to some trainings, I understand it to some extent. I, according to myself and also according to anyone observing me, I have not achieved that competency. I would have to get more training. I would have to um, be supervised for a while to make sure I'm doing it right. So I haven't achieved that competency. I'm not interested in EMDR because I have other very effective ways of treating trauma, but uh, I just provide that example <laughs> just in case anyone was keeping track. So um, in that way, do I have competency to be this involved in public media? Uh, how, how do I know I have, com- I can't just say I have competency. I have to demonstrate it somehow. Well, one of the ways you, there's various different ways you demonstrate competency. The classic way is that you've been to trainings, right? And I've been to a number of trainings on ethics and public media for clinicians, but there aren't a lot out there. So I, I couldn't rely on that alone as justification. The other is that I wrote this fucking paper. <laughs> Sorry for the F word for those of you who don't like it, but I think it applies, is I spent months writing this thing. Uh, and this involved not only just writing, but reading just pages and pages of ethical codes and commentary on all the different things involved in a clinician's ethical life being on public media. I also have consulted with many experts. I've I've talked with colleagues and I've bounced things off them. I've also done it for a long time. For 11 years now, I have been a clinician who uses public media quite extensively and learned from the, all the different nuances and also received feedback from clients and students and and supervisees and listeners. I've learned a lot through this process. And so with all those things in mind, then one would say, if anyone is an expert on the ethics of using public media as a clinician, it's me. Now, I'm not saying I'm the ultimate expert. There's people who know more than I do, for sure. And I've consulted with some of them. But I definitely think I have crossed that threshold. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't be doing public media and without being supervised if I didn't believe I had attained some level of competency threshold uh, in order uh, in terms of evaluating what's happening and also executing um, this boundary crossing. Because it is a boundary crossing to have a podcast and to post on public media. 
Number 10 is when possible, the client or trainee has, has provided informed consent. So this is an important ethical decision-making element in that have you actually uh, um, attained informed consent from those involved prior to you doing what you're about to do? So let's take me posting a picture of my cat on Facebook. Now, obviously, I'm not going to reach out to all my trainees and all my clients and say, is it okay if I post a picture of my cat on Facebook today? I don't do that. But what I do do is at the beginning of a relationship with a client, the beginning of a relationship with a supervisee, I review my uh, informed consent form or my supervision contract with them. And in that, there's a number of different things they need to know about my qualifications, my fees, blah, blah, blah. But another thing that is on that form that I verbally go over with them is the fact that I'm involved in public media and what that means for them, the potential harm it could mean to them. How are they going to mitigate that harm? How do we manage the fact that I'm in public media? So in general, I go over that with all of the people I work with professionally before we begin in a, in a relationship so that uh, they know what's up. So by the time I post that picture of a cat on Facebook, I know I already have informed consent to do things like this. And people know, you know the benefits and the risks of me doing it. And they also know that the um, they shouldn't actually be paying attention to it. Cause that's one of the things I say in informed consent is you probably shouldn't pay attention to anything I'm doing in public media because it could harm you. You you're free to do that because I'm not going to stop you, but you know, in general, you probably shouldn't, uh, for the following reasons, blah, blah. Anyway, the last ethical decision-making criterion here is when possible, the clinician has consulted with a respected colleague. So that's pretty uh, evident there. All right, so let's go over specifically what I do say in my informed consent form. And I actually recommend all you clinicians who are involved in public media that you have a section like this. It doesn't have to be this extensive, but it has to be kind of extensive because it's kind of a weird area. And I, I, in my opinion, I think we definitely need to have something in there. The only reason why you wouldn't have this in your informed consent form as a clinician or as a supervisor, would be because you have nothing in the public media. And there are some of you out there like that. You don't, um, all you have is like your website, which, you know, doesn't reveal anything about you. And you don't have a professional Facebook page. You never post anything. So often what I find, and I think this applies to these kinds of clinicians, is clinicians will have a professional page and they'll just post like little inspirational quotes or blah, 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 these kinds of things. I think even at that low level, you need to have something in your your informed consent. And uh, this is what I, I'm just going to read what I have in my informed, and I developed this as I finished writing this paper. So this is in both my client informed consent form and my supervision contract. I don't give this to students because it's not really the same thing. They, they don't have to be informed. They don't have to, students don't have to sign informed consent to be in my class. Supervisees do and clients do for sure. Um, I just go over this kind of verbally with my students, particularly those that are in my classes ongoing. All right. 
Before engaging in a professional relationship with me, you should know that I am involved in public media, podcasts, interviews, published articles and books, and posting to professional websites and social media. Since entering the field of psychotherapy in 1995, my primary mission has been to make a positive difference. In 2008, after 13 years of being a therapist, educator, and supervisor, I decided to extend that mission to public media. In doing so, I incurred the ethical responsibility of carefully considering whether or not the benefits justify the risk. The benefits include reaching individuals who don't have access to care, the democratization of knowledge, increasing compassion and self-compassion for those who are suffering, combating misinformation, providing an adjunct to care, and advocating for marginalized groups. The risks include confidentiality violations, harmful boundaries, and not representing the the profession well. As, As an example of a boundary concern, if you listen to my podcast, you might learn details about my life that could complicate our working relationship, such as a political belief or my take on a public figure. Also, if you comment on one of my social media posts, someone might guess that we have a professional relationship which would compromise your privacy and confidentiality. To reduce these risks, I adhere to the following guidelines. I recommend you avoid my public media involvement since you could learn things about me that might interfere with our working relationship. If you list, if you choose to listen to my media publications, please alert me beforehand so we can discuss measures to guard against harm to our professional relationship. I will not discuss anything about you in public media. Whenever I discuss cases, I protect clients' and supervisees' identities by composing a fictional person, speaking in general terms that don't reveal the individual, or obtaining prior consent. This protects your rights to privacy and confidentiality. I will not respond to friend requests, and I will not follow you. This protects you from being exposed to unhelpful details about my life and from being discovered as one of my clients or trainees. It also protects my right to privacy. This extends after termination of our professional relationship. I discourage you from commenting on my professional social media accounts. If you do comment, I will not respond to your comments. This protects you from being exposed as one of my clients or supervisees and from you confusing social media with proper care. If you email a question to my podcast, I will not read your question on air and I will only respond in person. This protects your confidentiality and from you confusing podcast questions with your care. If you wish to contact me, use my email address or phone number only. Other other methods of communication are not reliable and may violate your right to, to confidentiality. I discourage you from attending a podcast live event. But if you do attend, please alert me beforehand so we can discuss measures to protect your confidentiality and your care. I will not Google you without your consent unless there is a serious risk of harm that justifies the action, 
So just chiming in here. I did talk about this, but I, I also go into other social media aspects that don't really have to do with my ethics, but have to do with um, uh, just general care. I will not Google you without your consent unless there is serious risk of harm that justifies the action. This protects your privacy and safeguards against me losing objectivity. It also protects you from feeling invaded and betrayed by me. You should not become a paying patron of the podcast on Patreon, since becoming a patron involves a fee. You might feel obligated to continue paying for a subscription beyond your preferred time span. If you want to access... If you want access to patron content, let me know, and I will give you access at no charge. Similar to in-person meetings with you, I might be required by law to contact the authorities if you reveal on social media that you or someone else is in serious harm or if you reveal a child or dependent adult is being abused. If you have any questions or concerns about this, please let me know. It's my job to answer your questions and to address your concerns. So that's the end. So that last little bit I didn't get into, which is that if a client of mine reveals, uh, or I guess maybe a supervisee, revealed on social media and somehow, even though I don't follow them, I somehow saw it. Well, I mean, I guess a more realistic scenario would be I post an episode on Facebook about abuse. And one of my clients says, yeah, and one, so let's say one of my clients is 16 years old and the client says, yeah, you know, my parents do this sort of stuff to me. Well, just because it's on social media doesn't mean that my mandated reporting responsibilities go out the door. I still have those mandated responsibilities and I still need to call CPS. So I, that's why I say that in that bit there. Okay, so at the end of this paper, I basically just summarized all my recommendations Part of, part of this was to help people with galvanizing everything in one spot, but also it was kind of helpful for me to review everything and be like, okay, so I looked into all these different areas. What, is, what does this all mean in terms of what, what should I be doing? So I'm just going to read it. Before embarking into public media, before embarking into public media, clinicians should take some time to review the ethical literature, consult, and develop a plan to protect their clients, trainees, and themselves. Clinicians should develop a mission statement to guide them in their decision-making. For example, I knew from the start that I wanted to make the world a better place. This This mission has guided me through confusing moments while engaging with the broader world of the internet. Clinicians should develop a well-versed ethical decision-making system. Clinicians should obtain professional competency through trainings, reading, and consulting. Boundary crossings, such as multiple relationships, should be avoided and accounted for. Before engaging in public media, clinicians should take an inventory of which self-disclosures are ethical and comfortable and which are not. Clinicians should never post anything that could be harmful or hurtful to clients or trainees, even to their private Facebook account, since clients or trainees might be friends of friends who do have access to that post. When faced with an ethical dilemma, clinicians should consult with a respected colleague. Self-disclosure in the media should be avoided unless it is deemed unlikely to harm. Clinicians should document relevant information, such as a client commenting on the clinician's social media.
Facebook should be, see, sorry, <laughs> Facebook. Feedback should be sought along the way from consumers, clinicians, clients, and trainees to guide content and ethical decision-making. Before posting to public media, clinicians should contemplate how they are representing the profession. Of course, clinicians should avoid publishing inaccurate information and breaking the confidentiality of their clients and trainees. Furthermore, clients and supervisees should be adequately informed regarding the risks before consenting to that professional relationship. There are some minor recommendations worth noting. Clinicians should regularly review the privacy settings on their private social media accounts. Although clinicians need to be aware that clients and trainees might not... Blah, 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 blah. Um, let's see. Oh, um, so here's another one, actually, that I saw. Someone emailed me, I think. Uh, yeah, a listener told me that... Um, so I haven't mentioned this, so it's worth telling. that. So a listener emailed me, and she's like, I was in therapy... And I like my therapist and I also love Reddit. And so, so, so sometimes I go on Reddit and I noticed that my therapist went on Reddit. So I was with my therapist. <laughs> Let me back up. I'm with my therapist. I'm talking to my therapist and I have a very specific issue that I want my therapist to help me with. And my therapist said, oh yes, I'm very good with that issue. Then the client goes home, goes on Reddit, and sees that the therapist has posted to Reddit and said, I have a client suffering from this very specific problem. I don't know how to treat that. How do I help this person? So the client has a different alias on Reddit. And, you know, therefore, the therapist didn't know that she was, you know, reading this stuff. And so the therapist harmed the relationship with her client because the therapist went on Reddit and asked us specific, even though it was very general, like I, I want help with this very specific issue. The only person that knew who the therapist was talking about was the client because the client was like, I just told you earlier today that I had this problem. Now it's, I guess it's possible the therapist had another client with the exact same problem, but it's unlikely, right? So there's a number of unethical things there. One is, is that you can't go on Reddit even anonymously because your client might be able to figure out it's you. Cause it's like, okay, what's the chance that another therapist had this exact same random issue, you know, today it's not very likely. So now I know that that's my therapist. Um, the other thing is that you, that therapist lied to their client saying that they were good at something when they're not, that's, that's pretty bad right there. All right, going on. Clinicians should regularly Google themselves to see what information is available to clients, students, and supervisees. When I Googled myself a number of years ago, I found that someone was using my full name, which is a fairly unique name, as a pseudonym on a pornography website. I contacted the user and asked them to use a different name, and they obliged. When being interviewed on the media, the clinician should inform the interviewer about what is off-limits. For example, when I'm being interviewed on the radio, I inform the producers that I will not answer questions about particular, about particular clients or about my private life. This circumvents awkward and uncomfortable moments in which I have to quickly evaluate and respond. Lastly, and most importantly, 
clinicians should engage with public media without undue fears. The world craves our voice. If we are bogged down by unnecessary fears, no one will ever benefit from our viewpoints. We all know how helpful we could be in our offices. It's time to spread that helpfulness to the rest of the world. And that's what I follow. That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. If you have anything to say about this, let me know. Email me at contact at psychologyseattle.com or go to our website, contact me through there. Those are the only two ways that I really uh, can respond to people or even read your messages. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. And if you're a clinician out there, you deserve to have your voice heard by everybody uh, if you want, because you have probably wonderful things to say and wonderful opinions, and you should you deserve that. And the world deserves to hear you. That's an important thing. The world deserves to hear you clinicians more. So get out there and do it because we all deserve it.